Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the season premiere of Tricky Kid Radio. I am your host, as always, Roy Turner. Uh, my gosh, I know I'm one to exaggerate, but uh, it would be impossible to exaggerate how awesome and how big and how actually how long uh, this episode is going to be. This is going to be a big one, folks. Uh, I know everybody is going back to school this week. We wanted to say happy Labor Day to everybody. We know that uh, I know some school uh, districts start before that, and that's that's odd because I, I remember very clearly that we got out Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and then we didn't go back until after Labor Day. So that's, uh, I know they're kind of, you know, shortening it a little bit more, but I know that like a lot of uh, places also kind of stick to that golden rule of you don't go back to school until after Labor Day, of course, especially the university. So anyway, uh, we got just a great show for you to get you back uh, in the swing of things. Now you're back into your studies and um, technically there's still actually three weeks left of summer. Uh, the actual, the final day of summer is actually September 23rd. Uh, so still a few more weeks left of some good weather, uh, so you can still hit the pool, even though, uh, you're back at work or you're back at, uh, back on campus. So anyway, uh, we are so excited to bring this to you is continuing with our 1989, uh, tradition. Uh, this is going to be uh, part three of our all things 1989, but we know we're going to kind of, you know, expand beyond that a little bit. Uh, our special guest is Stuart Stone. Um, if you haven't seen Jack of All Trades yet, on uh, the documentary on Netflix, you got to check this out, man. I love this movie so much. It spoke so much to me. Um, and where the 89 connection is, is it basically the show, uh, the movie documentary is uh, it's about kind of the baseball card boom uh, of the late 1980s, uh, specifically kind of zeroing in on which collectors will, will always remember, of course, is the King Griffey Jr. from the 1989 Upper Deck set. Now, you don't have to be a big nerd like me and, and, and Stu uh, and, uh, to enjoy the film because it becomes something much, much deeper, much richer. And it's just a, a lesson about life, but it's just a great movie. Stuart's a great guy. Uh, his family is awesome. And you're going to get to see a, a very, very specific time and place that I remember so fondly. So it's it speaks to me on so many levels, but uh, uh, I know people that, that did not come from that time or, or that hobby, and it, it, it equally, uh, you know, delivered and, uh, and, and spoke to them as well. So again, it's called Jack of All Trades, and uh, the co-director and the subject matter uh, of the film is, is Stuart Stone. And Stuart, he's also, obviously he's a filmmaker, but he's also, he's a, he was an actor, he was like the voice of like all these cartoons you remember, like Rugrats and a million other different things, and like Alf and all that. Um, he was also involved in the in the pro wrestling uh, world, just like me, man. So he and I would have been great friends, and uh, it was great to, to to chat with him. And um, and he's a great dude. So I can't wait for you guys to to hear us talk about that because if you have seen the movie, you're in for a great treat. Because I know that if you saw it, there was probably a lot of things that you wanted to know more and. And uh, this will kind of give you those answers. Um, I also want to try to present it in a way where it's not going to spoil it for anybody. Because there is a few things that you're going to want to watch the film maybe before you hear this. So 
Um, but for those who have seen it, man, you are really going to enjoy uh, some of the things that we learned in this chat. Um, so much to bring you. Our main, our man Chaz Knight uh, is going to be coming up uh, with us here a little bit later to co-host a little bit more, uh, a few segments here. Uh, we're also going to be speaking with uh, Barbara Horan. She, this is really, really cool. Um, Barbara is a, she's the proprietor of a place in Greenville, Texas, which is about Eh, about 100 miles north of Dallas, called the Texan. And those of you who remember the old school, you know, Main Street theaters, uh, you remember about, remember like the Rialto and the, the Royale, whatever was in your city, those great marquee theaters. And she uh, kind of spent her, most of her professional career in Austin, and all those theaters were being kind of torn down. And uh, except for the Texan. And this is the one that she remembers going to as a kid. And she uh, invested to save it. And they've got so many great shows coming up. Uh, and I'll tell you the 89 connection there is that um, we are also, of course, celebrating Debbie Gibson's 49th birthday. Debbie Gibson's birthday should be a, she's a national treasure and it should be a national holiday. And she just completed this amazing tour uh, with New Kids on the Block called the Mixtape Tour that also included Tiffany, uh, Salt and Peppa, Naughty by Nature. It was just so much fun. It's literally the most fun I think I've ever had. Not only at a concert, but like ever. It was so amazing. Uh, go to our website at tricky-kid.com. You can see our full review of the show with original pictures and the whole bit. And man, we had a blast. And uh, and the connection there is that <clears throat> now that the tour is over, Tiffany is about to embark on her own tour. Uh, and she is going to be paying a visit to the Texan uh, in Greenville uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, and we're going to be in attendance, and it's going to be this Saturday, September the 8th, and again, it's at the Texan in Greenville, Texas, and uh, uh, we're going to be in attendance, so, and it's a, it's a small theater, which only holds like 115 people, and, and it's great because it comes with like one price, it comes with dinner, parking, this intimate great uh performance where uh, more than likely than not you're probably going to also including meeting the artist so any big artist that you'd like to see a chance to see them in such an intimate venue and an intimate setting is unlikely i mean they have something going on here that is not happening anywhere else and and it's done with so much love and such a a, a nod to history and doing it with uh, just such a passion that uh, is very specific to this part of the world. And we're so grateful uh, to Barbara for, uh, you know, instead of, you know, people investing their money and time into to things like, you know, making more money or producing guns or whatever, she's doing something where she's producing memories for people and creating a social space and a place for local bands to play. And it's just so great. So I'm, I'm very excited for you guys to hear uh, from Barbara Horan. Uh, also, we got uh, uh, one thing I did want want to talk about too. Is it because also because of uh, of Stuart Stone? We're talking about baseball cards. The last two installments, we kind of focus a lot more like on the pop music and the TV shows. Even though we're going to talk a little bit more about that too, and and uh, you know a lot of the movies and stuff. Uh, this time, we're really going to focus on sports because there was such a 1989 has to be the most bananas 
bonkers year for baseball. And out of the big four sports, baseball, of course, is my, my number one. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a complete baseball fanatic, and uh, especially, and I grew up right in that sweet spot. In 1989, I can't wait to remind you if you if you were around at that time or educate you on uh, if you weren't about it's just such a, an amazing year uh, for baseball cards for baseball just the whole thing just really exploded and so many just so many just crazy things happened and so we're going to be getting into that and kind of the opposite of the pop music uh, that we were into uh, was the thrash metal that we were into. And I want to point to a lot of people to our Spotify playlist. Uh, if you go to D- my alter ego DJ Tricky Kid on Spotify, go ahead and subscribe there. We put a, together a whole entire playlist called All Things 1989. And again, the rules were was that the album uh, from the song or the actual single had to have been released within the calendar year of 1989. Uh, it was a little difficult because there were certain things that I love that came out of 1989 that I didn't uh, get turned on to till much later. Like, uh, like the, a great example would be Nirvana's Bleach. Uh, I love that record, but, you know, in all fairness, I had no idea who Nirvana was in 1989. Uh, So I had to kind of make some rules there and say, you know what, if I wasn't into it then, then it didn't make the list. But man, so much stuff did make the list, and it's such an eclectic mix, and you can kind of see my own personal history of the growth uh, I'm going from metal to getting into a lot more eclectic stuff, and of course the pop music of the time, and and uh, so much more. And we're also going to have some new music uh, this week, uh, actually from somebody who was born in 1989. He's a guy named Adam Jones. He's an up-and-coming singer-songwriter from Austin, Texas. And we have his debut single that we're going to be playing uh, coming up here in just a little bit there. I... Um, Speaking of music that has some sort of connection or referencing to 1989, I'll admit I'm not the biggest Kid Rock fan in the world, but uh, he has this song called All Summer Long. And since we're, even though we're back in school this week and all that, I still got those summer vibes going. He has a song called All Summer Long that I think has been out for a while, but I I just recently heard it for the first time. And I got to be honest, it, uh, the lyrics actually really uh, touched me and actually spoke to me. Uh, and I think it would be to anybody, any young person in any summer can kind of relate to this. Uh, but he pointed to certain things that happened specifically. Now, in 1989, the summer rating on he would have been 18. Me and my friends would have been 15. But the song starts out by him saying, it was 1989, my hair was long, my thoughts were short. And he even points specifically, he goes, he goes, it was summertime in northern Michigan. For us, it would have been in North Texas. Um, then I love the chorus where he says, you know, that kind of that trading, um, you know, your innocence for experience, but still in an innocent kind of way where he says we were trying different things. We were smoking funny things, uh, sipping whiskey out of the bottle and not thinking about tomorrow. Uh Golly, that's that frames that summer and uh, many summers for me, but uh, specifically that one. So um, hats off to Kid Rock for that. You know, you and I certainly probably would not ever agree or see eye to eye on politics, but uh, I also know that you're into Bob Seger and uh, and uh, and good music. So my fr- so anyway, regardless. Um, we'll keep politics out of it, and I just wanted to mention that. Uh, there is so much to get into 
here. Uh, I've been doing all this research for this specific uh, episode, and man, I'm going to be firing off all kinds of stuff here. I mean, it's just crazy how how many so many things have just shaped that are celebrating the 30th anniversary. So I'm going to try to get through quite a bit of it here. I mentioned in part two how we were going to be out at the Let's Play Game uh, Let's Play Gaming Expo in Irving, Texas. And they had their own, uh, I'm sure a lot of more things came from 89 that were there. But specifically, uh, they had a contest um, for uh, The Wizard, uh, which was uh, a great, uh, fun film from 1989. Uh, basically, it started as Fred Savage, remember, of course, from The Wonder Years. And uh, it, it follows uh, these kids out to California. We're the youngest of the three. Uh, he's a little emotionally withdrawn, but he's kind of got this gift for playing video games and uh, anyway, uh, Let's Play Gaming Expo did this whole great thing uh, with a contest uh, surrounding the wizard, and uh, and it was a, a great, great time. Uh, we just saw, we went to MC Hammer's uh, freaking house party with him and Kid and Play and Sir Mix-A-Lot. Oh, my God, who all was there? But Two Live Crew was there. I think I might have mentioned a little bit about this. A little confusing because I didn't realize that... Uh, there really wasn't anybody from Two Live Crew still in the band other than Mr. Mix. Like, Brother Marquise wasn't there, Luke Skywalker, Luther Campbell. Uh, and I had no idea that Fresh Kid Ice had passed away, so rest in peace there. So, um, you know, but, but 1989, of course, was the year of as nasty as they want to be. Uh, recent screenings of Weird Al Yankovic's UHF, which celebrates 30 years. I've been seeing a lot of that, as well as Field of Dreams, speaking of baseball. Uh, the Texas Theater uh, in uh, the neighborhood of Oak Cliff. This is actually uh, the place where they actually they found and arrested Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, the seat that he uh, was arrested in is still in there. And it's a... Um, it's a wonderful, amazing theater uh, for in its own right outside of that. But uh, uh, so much cool stuff, uh, you know, that was from then coming back now. Like, for example, there's a new Bill and Ted movie. Well, Bill and Ted, uh, of course, started and, uh, in 1989 with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, to which the cartoon version of that, uh, our guest Stu Stone, uh, was the voice of that. So like I said, lots of stuff. I'm gonna be be flying at you there. Uh, Sebastian Bach, who is kind of in the news, you know, he's been trying to reunite with Skid Row now for God since it was like '96 or something. He's gonna be doing the entire uh, first Skid Row album in its entirety. It uh, looks like Rob Afuso, the original Skid Row drummer that was on that album, he's about like the only one that might actually join him on stage. But the other guys are. Um, are holding steadfast. Uh, doesn't look, that's that's one reunion that just might not ever actually happen. So for whatever reason, but um, that show uh, is coming to this area to our friends at uh, the Gas Monkey Bar and Grill, which is right outside of Dallas, uh, and it comes uh, to town on October the twentieth. Tickets are available now at uh, at GasMonkeyBarandGrill.com. Oh uh, man, again, still so much stuff. And one thing that uh, that the Jack of All Trades movie and, and kind of thinking about my own baseball cards because I still have mine and you know I'm a new dad and and I can't wait to get Miles involved in all that was that uh, my friend Steve and and just as a small disclaimer here <clears throat> those of for all of you who have been listening to parts one and two of this I kind of give my man Steve a little bit of shit 
Uh, deservedly so, though, you know, but uh, uh, I have nothing but love in my heart for, for Steve, and he is, and he feels the same way. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling the events of the time. You know, we were 15, and things like that are going to happen when you're 15. Of course, we can laugh about it now, which we very much do. Uh, I haven't seen Steve for a couple of years, uh, but we're still very much in contact, um, and we talk often uh, via social media or even offline. And uh, and one of the things was what's so great about this movie, uh, Jack of All Trades, is that you know he was the first person that I thought of. You know, like he he and I, he was my baseball card buddy. Like he's who. I turned him on to collecting, and uh, and some of our best years of, of our entire lives were spent, uh, you know, reading the you know, Beckett Baseball Card Monthly, which I had no idea until the movie that Beckett was based right here in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And my God, I remember searching hell and high water for that magazine. I don't know. Hell, probably been easier just going to the headquarters had I known it was just, you know, down the street there. But anyway, I disclaim that because, you know, I, I just want people to know that it's been so great to reconnect with Steve actually about these baseball cards. And I've recommended the movie to him. And we just had a great, great chat um, over the phone uh, about a week ago, whatever. And I was whipping out my old baseball cards and I was screenshotting them and sending them to him and reminding him about all the insanity, like, you know, the Billy Ripken, you know, error fuckface card. And of course the, the upper deck King Griffey Jr. And, uh, he's from Houston. So he's a big Nolan Ryan fan. And we're just remembering a lot of things. Like he suddenly, he like remembered he had like, you know, traded me like his like early seventies Nolan Ryan cards for my super Nintendo. And, and he got mad about it all over again, you know. <laughs> you know, so I just want people to know that uh, we have nothing but love for each other, and we're just I'm just going through the list, and there's more to that story too, man. So we got that coming up, and I just wanted to to, to keep everybody uh, informed about that because because you'll you'll love uh, more uh, tales uh, from the the Steve and Chris and uh, and Roy, uh, the Three Musketeers um, vault there. We got a lot of that coming up too. And yes, you know, The Simpsons began in December of 1989 and, and not as part of the Tracy Ullman show, like their own debut. And we wanted to, to say, give our condolences to the family of Russie Taylor. Uh, she voiced both Minnie Mouse, uh, not only for, for 30, but for over 30 years. She was the character Martin Prince. Uh, and she passed away at the age of 75. And we just wanted to say thank you for 30 years of your magic. I laughed so much. Uh, over Martin, one of my favorite characters, and uh, brilliant. And uh, our condolences go out to uh, to Russie uh, and, and her family. Also, while doing research, as you know, 30 years ago in the gaming world, we talked a little bit about how, in the last episode, about how the Power Glove, that shitty thing that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that it sucked. I had to champion it because I was poor and this was my, supposed to be my cool thing. Anyway, I found a great ad of the old, uh, High C who introduced the Ecto Cooler because of course Ghostbusters 2 and uh, Run DMC's song from that is actually on our playlist from Spotify so make sure you check that out and the songs we're going to be playing on the show are going to be different from that because we didn't want to duplicate that but anyway I uh, saw this great ad where if you buy a High C Ecto Cooler um, you could win a free power glove it doesn't get much more in 1989 than that and we talked, you know, in part one a lot about Motley Crue, uh, of course, Dr. Feelgood. 
and they got some peculiar, uh, you know, which I love Motley, but they got some, it's almost like Kiss, some very peculiar merch. Interesting to celebrate the 30th anniversary. I don't know if it's because football season is about to start, but I swear to you, I just saw this Motley Dr. Feelgood package uh, where you get the album in a shirt, but also a Motley Dr. Feelgood football. <laughs> Don't really equate uh, football with Motley, uh, you know, but um, uh, just a few weeks ago was also the 30th anniversary of the the Moscow Music Peace Festival held in the Soviet Union. Uh, it was put together, of course, by Motley's uh, manager and Bon Jovi's manager, Doc McGee. It was actually from this that actually where Doc was actually fired. So if you've seen the dirt, and I, I pray that you have because it's so awesome and it's so much fun. But in the movie, he gets fired because Nikki was mad at him for bringing his mother around. I'm sure that might have been uh, a notch in the we're going to fire you soon uh, chamber. But ultimately, it was because he had kind of gotten sick of them and he had kind of favored and championed his other act, Bon Jovi, over Motley and egos ensued and so did his firing. Uh, but it was uh, set to be a part of the For the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Of course, it included, like I said, Motley, Bon Jovi, Ozzy, uh, Skid Row, uh, once again, uh, and Cinderella and the Scorpions, like a total hair metal dream. I know I, I would have wanted to have been there. I remember seeing that concert. Um, I think it was like broadcast either on MTV or pay-per-view or whatever. And just a quick note for TV. Like I said, we kind of got into this a little bit before, but uh, Saved by the Bell uh, debuted uh, on this week uh, exactly 30 years ago, which is crazy to think about that. That was 30 years ago. It ran for four seasons and 86 episodes. And uh, man, uh, God, I love that show. Who doesn't love that show? If you don't love that show, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm metal, but... I think that there's something very metal about Saved by the Bell. Actually, the opposite. It was something very wholesome, and I uh, and I loved it. So, and also, it was the end of something of a few things in the beginning of something. Uh, my dad loved uh, game shows, and probably his favorite game show ever was Card Sharks. And uh, Card Sharks actually ended in March of '89, and I remember one of those big moments in my house. Uh, my parents were divorced, so I don't include my dad in this. This was just me, my mom, and, and my sisters. But we loved the show Family Ties, man. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, Back to the Future 2 came out in 1989 starring Michael J. Fox. And maybe this was one of the reasons why it got canceled because he was going on to be a big movie star. Uh, but Family Ties ended. And it was one of those great moments where the cast um, came out to the studio audience and came out of character and thanked the audience and the watching audience and bowed. And I can remember openly weeping. And, and how often are you going to openly weep over a TV show, especially as a tough 15-year-old skateboarding metal drummer guy like me, right? Uh, but I'm sensitive, right? Uh, but anyway, that was just one of those big, big moments. When I think about it, I still get a little 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 choked up there because it was just that show meant so much to us it was again back when people would watch tv as a family campfire style um and so that kind of ended a little bit with the 80s um and specifically for us that would have been the show that we did that with and you know it's funny we just saw also just saw Joan Jett and uh with Hart who did a great show 
And Joan Jett was in a movie around that time too uh, called Light of Day. And one of uh, my favorite songs is from the, 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 the title track to that. It's always kind of been my kind of like when I'm kind of feeling down, kind of picking me up kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so Family Ties ends. So it's the end of Family Ties, but the beginning of Family Matters. And, you know, my gosh, this really bleeds into the 90s because when you think of the 90s, especially the early 90s, you think of Steve Urkel. Jalil White is Steve Urkel and, and that whole thing. And so, again, the end of Family Ties and the beginning of Family Matters. All right, so that's enough little fun facts for now, okay? So we'll bring you some more of that throughout the program. Uh, so now, how about, so this is Adam James. He's a singer-songwriter uh, from Austin, Texas. And we'll be right back with Stu Stone, who is the co-director and the subject of him and his family uh, for Jack of All Trades, now streaming on Netflix. You got to see this, man. We want to tell everybody, uh, make sure you subscribe. You'll get shows just like this each and every single Thursday uh, for as long as you all shall live and can air it over and over again, go to iTunes and just subscribe, get on the podcast. If you're not on uh, the Apple uh, tip, we're on every single server, including Pandora and Spotify. Uh, we're on FM Player. Any any way that you consume your podcast, you can find us under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. Uh, go to Facebook. We're under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. My alter ego is also under, under DJ Tricky Kid, as well as Instagram and Twitter under Tricky Kid and the number two. So anyway, so let's have some music, and we'll be right back with Stu Stone. She's got me down. I need you to help me take away my blues so I can turn this around. I was a fool for losing you. It's a shame, but it's a truth. People talking, try and tell me what to do, but I'm still not over you. You are the one I dream of. You are the one I think of. You are the one I still love. You are the one, you are the one. Your magic lingers in my mind You know there ain't no other kind Try to sleep but you stay with me in my dreams Oh but that's alright I'm in your river way too deep I know you're not waiting for me I just keep on sinking to you in my soul And I try to move on You are the one I can dream of You are the one I can think of You are the one I still love You are the one, you are the one You are the one. 
O'Halloran, you might know me from such iconic classic films as Clerks, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, Vulgar. Anyway, you're listening to Tricky Kid Radio. Hi, this is Marilyn Gigliotti. Most people know me as Veronica from Clerks. It ain't 37. Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner. Hey, everybody, this is actor musician Scott Schiaffo, best known from the Kevin Smith films Clerks and Vulgar. You are listening to Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner. I, I can remember before that we used to collect like stickers and have sticker books and shit. Yeah. Eventually comic books. And I remember like when my dad first, before he opened up Sluggers, he had done, he was doing like local card shows and he was called Jack the Pac-Man. He would just sell wax packs and there was no baseball card shops, but there was a comic book shop in town. And I, he convinced that comic book guy to let him put some baseball cards in the shop. And within like six months, the baseball cards were taking up like the whole shop. And that's, this wasn't in the movie, but that's sort of what made him say, oh, you know what, I got to just go on my own and just do a baseball card shop. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, so comic books, baseball cards, it's like, that's what we collected and played with. And it was, it was a pretty, pretty amazing time to be, uh, to be growing up in. You know, I say that all, I say that all the time, and that's something else too. That when I watch it, how much it made me miss that stuff. And so, I would love to get into a lot of things like you mentioned that actually aren't in the film. That kind of is a is an is an accessory to because uh, the people that have seen it or are about to see it without giving away too many spoilers. Um, you mentioned how you couldn't have imagined, you know, five years ago when you started this. It seemed like that the, your original idea for, for this project was very different. Than what yes. it became. What was your original vision? Well, I mean, listen. My grandfather had passed away, and when he passed away, um, they were like cleaning out his house, and like deep in the basement, they found like all these boxes that were had my name written on them. And so they didn't get thrown out. They ended up at my mom's condo, and she was always bothering me about these boxes. And I had already done work on. Uh, my brother-in-law, who's my partner, Adam, he, he had worked, him and Harv, actually, did a documentary on the Rubik's Cube. Okay. It was, like a really, it was a really cool, like, nostalgia doc. Okay. And I had worked on this documentary on the Iron Sheik, like, the wrestler from the 80s. And, you know, we were all doing these, like, nostalgia stuff, and there was like, hey, maybe we could get a, a funding if we, like, do something else, like, that's nostalgic. And I was like, well, listen, I got these boxes that are at my mom's condo, I bet you if we went and filmed it, if I open it, like, I, I'm pretty sure what's going to be in there is going to be, like, the greatest thing ever. And they're like, what? I'm like, just, you know, 
cards. Like, I used to have the sickest collection. My dad used to own stores. Like, I know that people my age would, like, love to revisit their childhood, like, learn about baseball cards and, like, a little history. And this would be a perfect jumping-off point because I'm pretty sure, unless I'm wrong, that's what's going to be in there. And they're like, how do you know? And I'm like, because I remember as a kid, like, packing up the boxes and putting them away, like, and here we are, you know, 30 years later, like, there there it is. You're right, right. And they were like, okay, let's do it. And... You know, at first it was sort of starting to play out organically, like exactly the way I kind of thought things were going to go. And, you know, obviously uh, learning about the value of the cards was a little bit shocking. And there's people that are like writing now, like after seeing the movie, like, how did you not know that cards weren't worth anything? <laughs> and I'm like, listen, you, it's traumatic when you're, <laughs> when, when we say goodbye to baseball cards, it was like goodbye to baseball cards. You know, it's like right. we had a real, it wasn't like I'm like checking back in on an ex-girlfriend to see what she's doing. I never <laughs> right. looked at baseball cards again. And so, you know, I suppose I could have looked up stuff and like that would have saved me a lot of time, but I'm happy I didn't. Yeah. Because we got this great movie out of it. And, um, you know, the dots started to get, as we were sort of, sort of trying to sort of investigate and connect some dots, this whole family sort of angle sort of came in because... Um, you know, the way that it was sort of proposed to me was like, hey, listen, if anybody's going to tell you what happened, it would be your dad. Like, maybe he knows what happened with the cards. And so I was thinking in my head, you know, like, you know, maybe that would be something that would be I'd be willing to do. And I think, you know, the whole I don't want to ruin the movie for people who haven't seen it, but there's like, you know, it gets pretty heavy. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it ends up, you know, the people, the card companies are more upset at me. Well, they're not upset anymore. We all made up since then. <laughs> they, were, they were upset at me before, not because of what we what, what stories were told about what was going on with baseball cards in the 80s and 90s. They were more upset with like the ending of the movie. And That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Sacrificial kind of scene. And I was like, come on, guys. It's like, it's got nothing to do with you at that point. It's like more to do with me. Like, yeah. And it's all good. Uh, listen, it's, it's a movie. We're trying to. It's a great way to sort of finish our story. If, we're, if, I'm, if I'm a true storyteller, and I'm wrapping my head around what's the story here. Yeah. Is, this is a great way to sort of conclude this story. For sure. And well, I, I personally loved it, and I've had conversations with the people of um, you know Tops and Upper Deck since the movies come out, and I've heard their. You know, they've aired out to me how they felt, and they were right to feel the way they felt. And, you know, we talked, and things are cool, man. They're cool people. The people that work at Upper Deck now are not the people that worked at Upper Deck in 1989. It's not the same people. It's not the same anything. Right. It's like people just trying to do their job and put out, you know, they, they do amazing products still. And, you know, they're good people. And the guy, Chris, who's in the movie, he's, you know... Yeah, you talking to the guy that that is responsible for the King Griffey Jr. thing, dude. Yeah, I, he's the man. I became the man. I became twelve years old because we all have that moment of when we fall in love with cards, and I had that moment. You know, I was eighty nine, Steve Ainsworth's house. I opened it up, got King Griffey Jr. number one in a pack. We still we still talk about that, you know. Insane. 
Yeah, but you know, I want to I want to unpack a few things over five. So I'm going to cut you off. I want to unpack a few things that you just said to kind of get on track here. Is that I had I had a different reaction when you said people were like, I didn't know how how could you not know that your cards weren't worth anything. I was just like used to. I didn't. I still have my cards, thankfully, but I I haven't. They've been in the back of the closet for a couple of decades. You know what I'm saying? And so, and I always thought, man, you know, I'm a new dad. That's that might be his college fund. So the movie actually gave me a bit of a heart attack. I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean these cards aren't worth anything? Because I come from the same era, you know. So 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 there's that. But at the same time, were you, were you thinking this was just going to be like a like a short or like a feature length? No, I, I was I was always planning on doing a feature length film, and you know what? There's like so much footage that wasn't used in the version of the film that you saw because I did truly shoot a baseball card documentary that ended up being overtaken by this family documentary, which is fine. But I'm saying like my original concept was to do baseball cards and like. What happened? What, like, what's the story behind the Mickey Mantle rookie? What's the story behind the Billy Ripken card where he wrote on the bat? Like, how right. did that happen? Right. What did? And I, and I went and I interviewed people about all these things. Tell me about Don Mattingly and the Mattingly rookies, all baseball card stuff. And I spent a whole day at Beckett and had got amazing stuff. And then by the time the movies that you see, it's played for like two minutes. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, these are fights. These are fights that I got behind the scenes. That you know, at the end of the day. I really wanted to include all of that stuff. There's some really, I went to Leaf and I talked to him about the Frank Thomas and I just did all baseball card nerd stuff that like, I know I would want to watch. And, but it's interesting. The bottom that, line is, yeah. the, the, well, the bottom line is the movie that was, you know, that we were, that we, we had 85 minutes to tell the story. Yeah. So right. Right. 20 minutes has to go. And when everybody's crying, watching this movie, I got to take out baseball cards because people crying makes this movie a lot more of a special Thing than what I was trying to do to begin with, and it just became this whole other thing that I'm so proud of. And uh, you know, listen, it's it's an incredible thing, whether people believe it or think it's real or not real, or you know, I know it because I lived it. Well, so, yeah, yeah. To me, it's like the craziest thing that I've ever been a part of. Well, and you, well, but how did you go? But, but so, how did you go from not thinking about baseball cards for 30 years to suddenly being, wait a minute, I'm like, wait. Like I know everything about '80s baseball cards, you know, because because I, I can talk that talk too, you know. Obviously, the the, the Mattingly, the the McGuire, the the yeah. Conseco thing. So yeah, no, because you did it, it's like riding a bike. It's yeah, like, that's listen. I'm a little kid then. From yeah. the time I'm a teenager to now, there's been drinking and smoking and smoking. And, and <laughs> I was completely sober and loved everything about. What I was doing when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Right. It's like yesterday to me. Totally. So, plus we work, my dad owned 11 baseball card shops. Like, if I didn't know everything about 1980s cards, I would be like, what kind of idiot would I be? Oh, yeah. Like, or truly stoned. Know, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, there is my sweet spot is definitely that. Like, yeah. That era, I know everything. You know, I used to read the Beckett cover to cover. I worked at the store on the weekends. I knew everything about it. Right, right. And, uh, well, so that stuff stays with you. Well, let me ask you this then. When you mention about the people being, the baseball card companies potentially being, being angry, and again, without giving too much away, I did want to say this, uh, a couple of things. One was that, you know, the actual aesthetic uh, that you're using to promote the film uses the Topps logo. Uh, well, not exactly, but it's definitely, like, inspired for sure. But They the, were really cool with us. 
did you have to get permission from that? And did yes. it, and did they have to? Did they see the ending of the film before or after they approved it? Uh, I don't know really who what I don't I can't tell you the order because I wasn't involved directly in that. Okay, but uh, you know, tops all the the whole way. Tops was treated as amazing. They were the best. We went in their office. I had the day of the, one of the best days of my life. I could cut like a two-hour movie of just my day at Tops. Oh yeah, you know it's like oh like, yeah. Like, literally, they they treated me like king, like the king of the world, and uh, it was. I went to all the floors, got the big. They were amazing, and they were just so cool. So I think that you know they probably. I think from their standpoint, they don't want to even with the upper deck stuff like Tops. They don't. It's not. Nobody wants this old dirty laundry. Like it's not good. It's you know. They don't, yeah. Right. It's, it's just like whether it's about them or not about them it's like they're sort of as much as their competitors they're all still in the same business so it's like well let me if we're saying if we're saying upper deck did something or not did something tops isn't going to be happy about that either uh, for, so, for sure because because it's, it's an industry as a whole of course right but I wanted to draw a comparison to you for you as well one thing I thought was so brilliant and that made the movie so great and so fun and so kind of Willy Wonka like was that what kid, period, what baseball card collector, especially from our era, who doesn't dream of fucking going to the Tops building, right? Uh, so it's, Never mind that. How about that? I see your Tops building and I raise you with, like, going to Jose Canseco's house. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? That was the it shit. Was like, dude, that was, I was with him for about two hours, okay? I Again, I have so much footage that, like, is so good that, like, I asked him about everything, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if I have Jose Canseco, I'm just going to keep talking until he says get out. And, like, that's what I did. <laughs> but we had the best time. He's At first, he was, like, he was a little bit standoffish. But, like, once he started talking to me, by the end, he was, like, he loved us. He was, like, what are you guys doing after? You guys want to go hit some balls? Like, he was... He was really cool. Like, like wanting, like he is inviting you to hang out. Like, how cool is that, right? You know? Oh, man. I mean, I haven't seen him since, but uh, that was just a great day, man. I got to tell you. And then after that, I went and saw Foul Ball Paul. And so Vegas was just, like, so great. Uh, it was just such a great trip. Yeah, but you um, you come off as, like, such a, a, just a nice, warm dude. Because when that whole thing, not giving anything away, but, the, you know, you had an agenda that you wanted to do with Foul Ball Paul. You know what yeah. I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 Okay, yeah. and right when I sensed that, I was like, I go, he better, del- I, I go, I bet he's going to try to deliver on this. He seems like a really good dude. And when you did at the end, man, I was just like, I- get this dude on the phone. He's got to come on yeah, this show. That's so funny. Dude, I was, my hands were like shaking when I did that oh. scene with Paul. I was so nervous. I didn't want to blow it. And, you know, he doesn't give like the greatest reaction that you can imagine. Well, well yeah, like, of course. That's him. That's him. He, you know, like it, it was so beautiful. It was He was so appreciative. And I've actually done some really cool stuff with Paul since then. Um, oh, great. I, we, we had a couple of screenings in Toronto. Well, we've had about four screenings like in, in a, like a movie theater, like a proper screening. Oh, cool! And so, at all these screenings, Paul was came to the screenings, and we had him like seated in the audience. Oh. And then afterwards, we did uh, you know Q and A, and I would go up to the front with like Harv and Adam, Carrier, whoever was with, with us, and you know we open up the questions to the to the people. And as soon as someone asked me about my dad, because like 
every time they ask dads, right? Right. So I'm like, well, before we talk about that, like, let's talk about like a really great dad. We actually have a very special guest here today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Paul is dad. And like, Paul stands up, and people, the place goes insane. And and then we gave out his rookie card, and he was autographing it for people. He had the best time. Oh, so, dude, so that is so that great. We, so he's come to, and also Paul is obsessed with the Cooters restaurants. So I don't know if you've heard of the chain. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he has Paul has like a passport, a Hooters passport. So he goes like to every Hooters. He gets like a stamp on his Hooters passport. So he didn't have the one in Canada. So I invited him to come and his family to Toronto where we did the Canadian screenings. And Paul came and we did the surprise the audience. And then it took Paul to Hooters in Toronto so he could stamp his passport. So, you know, there's been no shortage of good good stuff happening for foul ball, Paul. That is uh, so wonderful, man. I can't tell yeah. you how, how much I, I enjoy hearing that. And, you know, I, I obviously I wanted to ask about your dad as well. I was going to wait till the end uh, to do okay. so we can have some fun here. But I um, I wanted to – because there was one part, since we're talking about Foul Ball Paul, I thought there was one great part of the, of the movie that I felt was deliberate that you left in. Um, I mean, I, I know the filmmaking process and all that, so I know when I can see something deliberate. And there was a part where you said to him, to his dad, like, man, what a great father that you are to nurture this. Right, and right. His, and his response was so you know what I'm talking about was so automatic. Yeah, he, he, he says, uh, he says, uh, well, what a choice, other choice do you have? Right. Okay. And yeah. it went, okay, I got to tell you, I you're the envy is palpable on screen from you, and I felt so emotional in that moment, and I just wanted to know what was that moment like for you in that moment. I mean, listen, there was like. There's so many of those type of moments that along the whole way, I mean, you can imagine like just as a viewer watching that and, and I've, I've experienced it as a viewer too and I get affected by certain parts. And I know my sister Carrie, she's seen the movie 200 times, she just cries every time. But my point is is that I had to like sit in an editing bay with this thing and live it over and over and over and over again. So it wasn't like I just went through that one time. Right, right. right. It's like I went through it once and then I had to relive that day a hundred more times in a row and then sound mix, and then send, and then just go to the screenings, and then Netflix. It's like, it's like it's like I've had to relive that day a billion times. Yeah. Um. So even like those little moments, like you're talking about, I found that this is a movie that, by design, and I would give credit to Harv as well. You know, there's a lot of like Easter eggy kind of things. Yeah. in the movie that if you watch it a second or a third time you're going to catch different things and the part you're talking about with Paul's dad was one of those beats that was like let's keep this in because later on when you see what happens with the other stuff you're going to remember oh shit Paul's dad was the man yeah right um, for sure for sure and 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 there's other stuff like that especially with like the bar mitzvah video footage the, the we actually the very original cut of the movie did not have any bar mitzvah footage in it that tape was found in the boxes. Oh, uh, my God. So the tape was in the boxes, and it was discarded. We had edited the whole movie, had gone back to the tape, to the box, again, and there's a tape, and it's the Bar Mitzvah video that's never been watched by the family, and it ends up being such a cool thread for the movie, but also there's, like, crazy shit going on. Like, now that you know what happened to my family... If you watch that footage again, there's like it's written. It's so obvious. Like my parents don't kiss at the thing. There's like 
my dad makes a joke about fucking some other person on the speech. Like, yeah. It's crazy shit going on in that whole bar mitzvah. And it's like, what? And, uh, you know, it's just a crazy movie, man. It it's really, a crazy well, movie. Well, we'll see. <laughs> You're telling me, man. And, and what a pleasure it is to be able to talk to you about it. And I'll tell you this. Sorry about the language, by the way. Uh, no, no worries. It's not live, and we'll we have editors, okay. so we're, we're, it's all good, man. Just be yourself. Um, okay. So you know, but I have on my list here of things, you know, and we're you know obviously you know you can always can always go in order, you know, but I have it right here about the bot mitzvah footage, because for me that made the whole movie like that. It was so brilliant. So I wanted to ask you, and you kind of already answered it a little bit. Like, whose idea was it to use it? Where, who found it? At what point of the process? Because any good documentary always starts to shine when you start to pivot. Do you know what I mean? Well, initially, initially when we found the tape, it was like holy shit, got it digitized, and the editor, a gal, he digitized it at his house. We still didn't even know what we were going to get there, but. The reason why we were so excited to find the Bar Mitzvah video, and this is a really crazy thing, is that we had, like, no pictures of my dad. Right. Like, so it's like, even for the whole movie, we're talking about this guy. Like, you barely see what he looks like, except there's, like, one shot of him when he's, like, 17 years old. Like, there's no pictures of this guy. Yeah, yeah, you needed footage of your dad. I had nothing. So yeah. I was like, well, I know he was there, so fucking if we find this Bar Mitzvah video, then at least we'll have something to show people. And then once we started watching the tape, I was like, holy fuck, the people that I'm interviewing in the movie about my dad are all at this bar mitzvah. So I could probably cut from that to that. So in the first cut, we were just looking for anybody that was at the video. Uh, And that's how certain family members got cut out of the movie, by the way, because that used to be a much longer montage. But if you weren't at the bar mitzvah, you were out of the final cut, basically. Oh, I see. I see. So it's like if you, and you know, then we could cut that footage. And then Harv was watching it again and started finding, like, he started noticing some crazy shit that I wasn't looking for. And, you know, then it all was like, oh, shit. There's so much more in this video. It's crazy. Then there was, like, when I'm interviewing my uncle and he's like, you know, this is kind of a spoiler, but you're a filmmaker, it sounds like, or you, like, understand what's going on in the movies. Yeah, I, I, I am also a filmmaker as well. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so then, you know, but when, um, there's a part in the Bar Mitzvah video where I'm, like, interviewing, and also I'm, like, interviewing the guy from Upper Deck is, like, at my Bar Mitzvah, and then I run into him at a card show 30 years later, it's the same guy, the same things. <sighs> it was crazy. But anyway, uh... I mean, the I documentary the gods... The, the, oh, yeah, wait, wait, hold yeah. on, hold on, this yeah. is good. There's a scene in the bar mitzvah where I'm interviewing my uncle and I'm like, hey, what's going on? Like, do you have all my bar mitzvah money? And he's like, no, but I'm going away on a long trip and you'll have to come and find me. He's, it, I was like, holy shit, in the trailer, like people don't know what my dad looks like. They're going to, that, like, that could be my dad. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that's like the, it's like the best trailer moment ever. Yes. He ended up putting it in. We ended up putting it in the trailer, and, like, that kind of helps propel. That's such a cool moment. Uh, it makes the trailer, like, this emotional thing that, like, even if you haven't seen the movie, the trailer is, like, a crazy trailer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought the trailer w- w- was great, too. You know, and I... So, anyway, it, 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 I'm just giving away shit here, but, it's you know, it's a movie at the end of the day, but, but, it, but this was very real, and, you know, my sister really did run over my cards, and shit, it's, it's, it, this shit all happened. When you have 85 minutes to tell a story and you shot for 27 days, 
you got to heavily edit stuff. Right. And so that's what you're looking at. You're looking at an edited movie. You wouldn't want to watch it if it wasn't edited. It's like sloppy mess. Right, it's right, like, right. This is, this, is, this is what a movie is. You know? Um, so, but the documentary gods were just smiling down upon you well, with, with that stuff, man. Well, the that shows up un, un, unannounced. Inter- it's yeah. Like, how can that be? How does that happen? You explain to me how that happens, and then we'll both know because that's pretty much the reason why this all happened. It's just like the documentary gods knew we were shooting or something. Right. It's like I was planning on – there was a moment when we had talked about my dad early on in the process, and I was thinking, you know, what if we go to – we'll fly to like the middle of Canada where like I think he might be, and like I'll just go and look for him. And I'll go into like the racetrack and like the casino and see if I can like find him. And I, if I don't find him, then I don't find him. But you know, let's see what happens. And I, I was considering doing something like that because I felt like I'd just be like a waste of time. I wouldn't find him, and it could be like a beat. Yeah. But then you know, once he shows up, it's a different ball game. Then it's like, okay, well, fuck. I guess I have to do this. This is why he's here. Yeah. So back that back that up just for a second, because because if you were actively looking for him, did that well, wasn't at that point. I'm right. Saying like in the initial just like conversations about like what direction oh, I see. this story go. I see. I was like, well, we could do a beat about my dad, and you know, I don't know where he is, and maybe that's part of something, and I can go to like look for him, and we just like don't find him, and that's good TV. Yeah, for yeah, sure, for like, sure. But when it's you like, go, oh, I didn't find him. Oh, sad. Yeah, right. But when you go to the card show, again, I don't want to give anything too much away, and we'll edit it so there's not so much spoilers here, so you don't have to worry about that either. But um, when you go to the card show, and then you walk away, and that one yeah, car- that crazy. And when that card that dealer guy says, put the camera down, that... Yeah, well, he actually told... That conversation was a lot longer between the two of them. Yeah. But he initially, which he was talking about explicit things that he, about my dad and the employee at the card shop, and he was saying that type of stuff, and... Oh, I see. And then he said he ran into my dad at a mall or something, and he actually had his number. So that's the guy that basically told us that 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 he was in Toronto. Right. And so, insane, right? Yeah, insane. Yeah, so if we don't go to that card show that day, and that guy doesn't recognize, obviously we're standing out like a sore thumb, like... You know, the audience who's watching, they're not thinking like the big pictures, like yeah. you would think maybe. But, you know, we're walking around with five cameras at a car <laughs> show. We're the only people in there. Like, everybody's staring at us. It's yeah. Not like, we're, like, blending in, you know? Yeah, yeah. They're like, hey, we're at the right card show, man. There's yeah, a- <laughs> not, 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 not to mention we're, like, arguing like animals in the parking lot before we walk in, making, like, a huge scene. And, uh, you know, then we walk in there. So it's like, that guy happened to recognize my sister and I from... When we're kids, somehow I have no idea. My sister started talking to him. He once he dropped the woman's name, I sort of was like, didn't I stopped talking to the guy because I just didn't want to hear about it. Right, right, and right. Harv, Harv stayed and kept talking to him, and they just that's what happened right there. Well, that's insane. what I picked up on is that, is that you were you were done with that conversation, and yeah, I, yeah for sure. And and that's I don't know how obvious that is, but it was. I was something that I felt like, like that I, I picked up on. Um, I'm also pretty disappointed in general because in reality, I thought that I was, you know, going to glorify all these baseball cards. And then it was like, oh, shit, this is a different this is a different path than what I was thinking was going to happen. Right. And right. I'm like, OK, this, let's go with this. And my head, the wheels 
wheels were spinning for me because when I'm walking around that card show and and the guy everything is worth five dollars, I'm thinking in my head like, how is that possible? Like, how what could have happened? There had to be a scam. Something I don't know. Right. Something had to happen to make this. But then it just teaches you any sort of. I'm not calling baseball cards. It's, it's definitely not a scam. It's a hobby. Right. And I definitely like. St- still collect cards again i you know i went and started collecting again i love cards i can't help it yeah and it's it's not so much the value it's more about the memories attached to them and totally growing up in the era and it's, it's like a tangible thing that can take you back in time just by looking at it there's so many different ways to romanticize old baseball cards totally we don't even get into that oh, right but, uh, but i did want but, un- know, i did want to unpack this though just for a second though if you don't mind me saying yep. this too was it isn't it interesting that you would be responsible, in a sense, for potentially a a second or a, or a new boom in collecting. Because after I saw the movie, the, the, like three days later, I happened to be at like you know a convenience store, and I bought a pack of baseball cards yeah, for the first time since the nineties because yeah. of the, because of the movie. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think you know that's the thing that these baseball card companies are going to see because yeah. like I've been saying to this I've been saying to them this to them all along this is going to bring back my generation we're the ones that are, are going to come back and we're going to come to the shops with our kids the kids are going to be looking for the Mike Trouts and we're looking for the Griffies that's right like, that's this right this is a chance this is a chance for history to repeat itself the same way that our fathers were looking for their mantles and we were looking for Roger Clemens it's the same shit it's the same shit so it's exact same shit it can happen shit. again right now it could easily happen again and I've seen it happening I went to the National Baseball Card uh, Convention in Chicago a couple weeks ago oh yeah my, my first time going since I was 11 years old was the last time I went to one of those wow me and my sister went and we didn't know what kind of reception we would get and I couldn't even walk 10 feet in there everybody had seen the movie it was like it was like wow <laughs> hundred thousand people are at this baseball card convention most of them have seen a baseball card movie that's out on netflix like for sure they've seen it you know it's like yeah it was really cool to get to meet people and like the number one feedback that i've actually gotten from the movie personally i get letters every single day from people who have had a similar story and it's mind-blowing how many people went through the same thing with their with their dad or their mom or something like that yeah People, people are reaching out to me. They're 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old people writing me saying, holy shit, I went through the same thing. Yeah. I can't believe it. Thank you for your movie, this and that and the other thing. And that's been a whole other sort of rewarding, crazy thing because, yeah, I know. I'm not alone. I'm not the only person that went through something like this. And right. I might be one of the few people that actually got to confront it. And so people can live vicariously through what I got to do. For sure. And it helps them and sort of helps them sort of figure out what how they feel about life then that's that's the ultimate power man yeah like, totally i'll take this movie over any fucking movie because that's this is this is what the point of it all is right that's right that's right and this it extends to be beyond that too you know i mean i think you might get some satisfaction in knowing that i reconnected with an old friend that i collected with to tell him about your movie we started talking uh, and we started talking about Billy Ripken in 1989, yeah. Upper Deck, and, yeah. and so you're hearing a firsthand account of two old friends that are now, right. you know, and you know I'm a new parent, and so I'm excited That's to kind of get him into, all, you know what I'm saying? So That's great. Let's unpack a couple other things here. I, I wanted to, to give you a, a bit of a comparison here. I'm also, 
you know the history about uh, about the musician Prince. I'm a massive Prince fanatic, right? And so I love you, Prince. Okay, I've seen him live many times. Uh, outstanding. So you know it too, then, that what did people always think about was about that vault that he had where he put all the, the you know, the rare music. That's kind of how I always kind of felt about, like, Tops. So when you open those doors and you're actually letting people into that kind of prince-like vault, you know, that kind of um, almost just fabled type kind of thing. Right. And, and then one thing I was hoping that we were going to see, and we did what was satisfactory for me, was that we did an episode uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I guess it was two years ago, for the 30th anniversary of the 1987, of course, again, that amazing wooded bordered, you know, 87 set, and just all things about the great summer of 87. And we had uh, Suze, who, whose, whose last name yeah, I still can't pronounce. Yeah. And so... Suze is the greatest. She's the best, man. And so when she was, so when the doors opened, I was like, man, I wonder if we're going to see Suze. And she was the first person we saw. She was actually like in so much more of the movie in my, in my original cut that I had turned in. That's 22 minutes longer than the person you saw. That's 22 minutes more about baseball cards. And uh, she's in a lot more. I was so impressed by her. She is, uh, she is like literally, it's, 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 it's inspirational to see her. And I know my sister was so excited about Suze. She's, uh, she's she's in a man's world and she's she's kicking ass. Oh yeah, and totally. She's, she's she's kicking ass. She is so cool. She knows her stuff. She loves her Derek Jeter. She was so nice to us. She gave us. We had like the best tour ever. You don't understand. Like there's so much you didn't see. Like that building is insane. Like uh, you know, there's a whole garbage field kids area. There's a whole there's a whole floor just doing like digital stuff. That's insane. Yeah. Um. But yeah, she is so cool, and I saw her. At, I saw her at the national, and she was really sweet. And yeah, she's really, she's just, it's really refreshing, and, and it's cool to know that you know, you know, there's she's she's there's quality control over there. <laughs> right, there. right, you know, right. She's, she's, I trust her, and I know that she's putting out good stuff and endorsing good things, and you know, it's really good. And there's something it's really, really positive. There's something satisfactory about the fact that she's a girl as well. I, I don't mean to be gender specific, but the fact that she is a female in a man's well, world. Saying, it's like my sister Carrie used to be like the queen of the schoolyard. She knew everything about baseball cards. Right. And right. she was like this cute girl, so she would like rip people off in trades all the time, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, it's her favorite player. One of them was Ricky Henderson, and somehow she kept ending up with Ricky Henderson rookies. I don't know how, but she was making these crazy trades. Well, she looks like a, a goddamn movie star. Like, I mean, I, I'm surprised she's not an actress herself, man. Well, she used to be. She's the reason why I even got into acting. She was like the original child actor of our family. And then she, you know, sort of got bored of it. And I just kept going. Okay. And But, yeah, she used to do it. She was in, she was in a bunch of movies and stuff when she was a kid, too. Yeah, she still looks like a movie star. I was, I, was, I couldn't. Uh, well, I'll let her know you said that. She'll be happy to hear it. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Me, me, and my wife were both in, and we're like, man, she, is she? What, what, what has she been in? Because we were kind of thinking, like, where have we seen her before? You know? Yeah. No, she's she's really cool. She's a mom of two boys. Her and her husband Brad, they have a great family. She's uh, totally into sports, and her boys are obsessed with sports. And she, it's almost like she has her own little card shop set up now. Like she's. That's she's wonderful. She loves it. She's she's fully immersed in the hobby. She loves it. That is wonderful. So when, we were, when we were at the National, I was walking around doing interviews and promoting the film. And she was too, but I kept looking for her and she would be, one second she's over there getting an autograph from Alan Iverson. 
the next minute I see her like thumbing through like do- the dollar bin, spending like hundreds of dollars on cards. <laughs> she was she was loving it. That is wonderful. Well, you tell her I said not only do I think that's awesome, but she is ready for her close up, man. I'm I'll telling tell you, her. that's She's awesome. Gonna be happy to hear that. Uh, you you also say something on your on your bio, and I want to ask you in your Twitter uh, bio where and you mentioned wrestling a little while ago. Uh, yes. So what's that about? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I'm from that era and, you know, part of that era with baseball cards were extremely popular, but WWF and WCW wrestling were also very popular. Oh no, and, I, I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm from that era too. I'm a massive yeah. fan. I'm just saying like, like yeah. what, what is, when you say a wrestling I, personality, I actually, what, what do you, I actually was, so, so there's a, I mean, when I was living in LA, I was involved in the show championship wrestling from Hollywood as a producer and, uh. I was on the writing team, and I ended up becoming a commentator, and then I ended up becoming a bad guy manager. And I was working with a lot of wrestlers that are actually in in, in um, WWE, and, and these days they like came up with me. Uh, but I was like sort of like a Bobby the Brain Heenan type of character, and I ended up getting booked like in Vegas and in Portland, Oregon, and in Arizona. And I was like doing dates with uh, part of the wrestling circuit, and I loved it. And you know, I actually was heavily considering you know still to this day would love to get involved more i miss it so much yeah i love it so much like i love it i love it so much uh i love the storytelling of it i love the athleticism of it i love that like the crowd is like there to get their suspense to suspend their disbelief totally i love you know and i just love it and i actually i left wrestling the first time to go work for I was working as a producer for Chris Angel in Las Vegas. Okay. And it was like the same. It's because of I knew wrestling, I was able to do magic. Yeah. And it's like, this, it's almost the same thing. It's like the audience is watching. They know that they're watching a show, but that that had to be real. I know this is all a gimmick, but that had to be real. Right. Like, that's, that's once you got him, once so you got him like that, like, like when, you know, Undertaker throws Foley off the cage, it's in. In that moment, it's impossible to not believe that it's real, right? Uh, it's it's literally the best. Um, I love it. I still watch it. You know, it's hard to watch it now. There's just so much of it. Yeah, for but sure. I, I watch it. I definitely uh, skim through and keep up to date with it. And I have a lot of friends that are in in and I'm keeping up with them, their careers. And you know, one of my good buddies, Colt Cabana, he's in the movie. Yes, yeah, that's right. I saw there. Colt in the, in the you know from, from <laughs> Chicago. I wanted yeah. I, I wanted to share this with you just for a second. Was that it's insane how much you and I have in common? Like I said you and I would have definitely would have been friends at, at, at that age for sure. And um, was that okay? So if you watched wrestling back then, and I'm in Texas, you might remember the the Von Erichs and all that of world course, class. Okay, of so I uh, for a couple of years, and I think you'll you'll like how I'm going to come full circle here with this. Is that for a couple of years. I worked as a color commentary for a wrestling promotion. This is just a couple of years ago. And what it was, the idea was to bring back world-class championship wrestling. This is called world-class revolution. Uh, it's actually, it's actually based actually out of Oklahoma city. Uh, even though I'm in Dallas and I, and, and that's, and I was the, the heel, uh, color announcer guy and the, person that I that I called my personality from was Jesse the Body and Bobby the Brain from back in the day. Of course. Well, the two best. The best. Well, here's where it comes full circle was that I guess maybe at one time, at least around this time, I guess 
he was just available to, to do shit or he was up for it. But we actually worked an angle where we had Jose Canseco actually come to a, a series of our shows. So my Jose Canseco story is that I actually worked a fucking wrestling angle with him out of, out of Oklahoma city. So I was like, man, I got to talk to this stew guy, man. We would like, it's just crazy. You know? Yeah. Jose told us a story that like he used to take bookings to do mixed martial arts stuff. Yeah. And they would pay him and he would send his brother to go do it. (laughs) I can get, he's he's a twin brother. brother, Right. And so Ozzy would go be Jose and like do the fight. (laughs) <laughs> um, well, so 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 maybe that was so maybe that wasn't Jose Canseco. <laughs> no, it probably was. If he didn't have to work. He probably then it was Jose. Yeah, but it was but, great because uh, I got to bust no, on him and stuff. You know, man, there's like the brotherhood of like the backstage camaraderie and the brotherhood of the people who are you know sort of in on it. Yeah, it's really a really cool thing, and it is. I love I love the fact that the men and women who do it, their number one goal is to not only take care of each other but make each other look good and it's very rare that you have uh you know something like that where you know the guy losing the match is really making the guy winning the match look good right and right they both know that going into it and the better the guy the bad guy is the better the good guy looks and it's very rare that you have something like that in life so well i mean there really is nothing else like it i mean i mean they're agreed there's truly it is an art form unto itself that is unlike really anything else i mean it is i mean there's 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 no hulk hogan if there's no rowdy piper right yeah you know there's got to be bad guys for hogan to be fighting or else who the hell cares did you did you say that you worked on that chic documentary i did yeah i was one of the producers on it oh okay okay yeah, so I got to spend a lot of time with Iron Sheik over a course of about five, six years, and that was fucking amazing, man. He's the man. Oh yeah, yeah. I've got <laughs> like there's no there's really no other comparison to the Iron Sheik, and I've met them all, and he's still the best of all of them. He's just so funny. He's so legendary. Is he's his everybody has like there's nobody with like a bad cheek story no i have a great one too yeah I, we all have good ones man you know because he is the, he is the man and, and i thought you would also like to know that our very first guest ever on this show four years ago was and the, actually the person who encouraged me uh encouraged us to do this to do this show uh and we're now four years in was actually diamond dallas page he's an old friend uh, of I love him. Yeah, Dallas is an old friend of ours, and so uh, yeah, great. So, so he was like, he goes, "You like to talk more than anybody that I know. You got to, you got to do this, man. I, I'm going. You know, he's always the, the this very positive type guy. You know, yeah, he's great. He's an inspirational guy. He's the man. Totally. I've gotten a chance to spend some time with him before too, and like, he's the man, and he tells this legendary story about the night he won the championship and his match with like. Hogan, Flair, Savage, and Sting. Oh yeah, it's like an incredible story. I've I've got to hear that story firsthand, thankfully. And I, yeah, he tells it to everybody. That's like his best. That's like the best story. Well, like, he's like sitting in the locker room and like all these legends bring yeah. him over one by one. And he's probably somewhere telling that story, like like right now, somewhere probably. Uh, for sure, for sure. I, I I wanted to get into one other little, little thing here was, and I'll just hit you with this very quickly. With is that 
what we're gonna, this is going to be its own interview, but it's also bits of it is going to be part of this series that we're doing about the 30th anniversary of 1989. Uh, everything, gaming, wrestling, sports, sure. comics, the whole bit. And me and my friend, like I said, I recently reconnected with, what made us start talking about it was that since you're a baseball guy and you grew up in that era, has there really been a crazier fucking year in recent memory for sports, period, especially baseball, than 1989? I mean, 1989 was insane. But So think about this. Okay, so Mike Schmidt, I'm a Phillies guy, even though I'm in Texas. So Mike Schmidt retires in May, right? Pete Rose gets banned from baseball. And then a week later, the guy that bans him dies under suspicious circumstances. The 89 Upper Deck Griffey thing, the Bill Ripken fuckface card, and then there an earthquake hits the World Series. Your thoughts. Yeah. Your thoughts, sir. <laughs> I mean, you just you just covered a lot of ground right there. I mean, un- unbelievable. Unbelievable year. Um you know, it's also the year of Macho Man Randy Savage is the WWF Heavyweight Champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Mega Powers exploded on television. They did. They did. Uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, listen, what, what a year. That Griffey Jr. is particularly exciting to me because in my personal life, business was absolutely thriving at my father's shops. It was probably like the, you know, I would say 1989 and 1990 were the biggest money years for baseball card dealers period right you know it's like all the people who started collecting in 84 and 85 plus all the new people that were coming along on the wave so you know business was booming beckett was selling a million copies a month 1989 you had uh nintendo was on the rise he was super mario brothers uh you know just staying up all night tech mobile yeah rbi baseball all that stuff um you know television tji friday you know all the good shows on Thursday and Fridays, you know, legendary uh, television shows. Uh, I don't even need to start name dropping the movies that were out in '89. But oh my god! I'm pretty sure Bat. I'm pretty sure Batman with Michael Keaton is '89. Well, speaking of baseball, um, Field of Dreams came out in '89. Field of Dreams '89. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good. I think uh, you know, musically, you know, MTV was still playing music on TV and still making stars. Right. Uh, MC Hammer, you can't touch this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh. You know, listen, those Oakland A's in 89, too. Are you kidding me? Ricky Henderson with those neon green Mizuno batting gloves. Totally. Uh, you know, McGuire and, and, and Conseco and Dave Stewart was unhittable and Eckersley. And that Giants team, I mean, Kevin Mitchell with the barehanded catch. Uh, you had uh, Will, Will the Thrill Clark, who I interviewed in Jack of All Trades and is, was edited out of the movie, sadly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you had... Uh, you know, it's just that, that Giants team was pretty, pretty amazing too. Uh, oh Matt yeah, Williams, I think, was the third baseman. Matt Williams was was, was, was a third. Runs. Yep, you had Will at Clark said at first. You had Kevin Mitchell in the outfield, and you had Chris Bobby Thompson. Uh, it was Chris Brown, not the rapper, but the, uh, the <laughs> he was in center field. Uh, and I'm trying to think of who, who was behind the. You had Andy Maldonado, maybe was yes, a- that's it. That's who I was trying to think of. That's it. You're right. It was, it was Maldonado, but so so. Maybe. I'll have. I'd love to send you if you'd like to, because what we cover is a lot of the like you're not going to believe the shit that started in '89 kind of thing, and or the things that happen and comprehensively across all those fields of gaming and sports and comics and and music and everything else. And so that's what I wanted to ask you is when you think of 1989, what is the first thing that you think of? 
I mean, only because of this conversation. Can 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card? I that's think right. Of, totally. Because that's it. That's like the Andy Warhol of our generation. Yeah. That's like the that's the art. If you see that, you're smiling no matter what. No matter Your what. Smile is as big as Griffey's. No matter what. Just <laughs> looking at it makes you smile. The hologram on the back, the way he's holding his bat, the way that they used. Uh, uh, it was one of the first cards to use like professional photo touching right. uh, to turn that minor league cap into a, a Seattle cap. It's just a beautiful, beautiful card. And that's what I think of when I think of 1989. And if you would have asked me that 10 years ago, I would probably still have the same answer. Yeah. Even if I wasn't thinking about cards. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely what I think of is Griffey Jr. And one last thing, because I do have to go. Okay. But one last thing is that... Uh, if in life, if anyone's like trying to get you to like invest in something, and it's like the whole point of the investment or the way to get rich is to like put something away for twenty years, that usually means that it's like not going to work out. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like give me your money now, and then with twenty years, and like they, their hope is that ninety percent of the people will forget about it, and tw- by the time twenty years comes around, for sure. Um, and so just buyer beware in any situation like that, Beanie Babies or whatever the hell people collect. And the moral of the story is once everybody starts collecting something, then it's if you're doing it for money, you're in the wrong business because everybody's got it. Uh, it's yeah. not rare anymore. That's right. Well, yeah. so last question. Uh, again, I will edit this so it won't have any spoilers, but for the effigy at the end, did you also burn the upper deck cards and the King Griffey Juniors? I burnt everything, man. And I did keep uh, Tom Guideman signed us uh, the set that I gave him, so I still have that. Okay, okay. Um, so I still have like that set that I was showing him in his office. I still have that. But anything that was in my boxes, I got rid of, and it's fine. You know why? Because if I want to go back and get it again, I can. Um, that's the whole point of getting, of destroying them. Like if everybody destroyed their cards, they would actually be worth money. That's right. That's, they'd make it more <laughs> so, rare, right? You know, I'm just doing my part to try to save save that era. They call it the junk wax era. I, I find that insulting. Totally. That's what they call it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's our era, man. That's that is, man. That's the greatest era of all. And, and no matter what, if we have our cards or not, we have our memories, man. You know? Uh, 100%. We have the memories, and, and those memories are, are not tainted. They were happy for me, even mm-hmm. with my father. My memories of 1989 and 19... Uh, you know that era we're talking about with my dad are the, some of the best of my life. Yes, so it's good stuff. Great stuff, brother. Listen, Stu, thanks so much for joining us, brother. I would love yeah, for I had us. A good time. I, I'm, I'm glad, man. Whenever you want. Okay, man. I said we should definitely should do, should do a follow up, and brother, maybe I'll see you in person sooner than later. That would be great. Awesome, Congrats brother. on your show on four years and keep going, man. Thank that you, brother. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You too, man. Thank you, Stu. I appreciate yeah. it, man. I'll All talk right, to you soon. Care. Cheers. of all trades you have to do i mean you i will give you my netflix password uh for you to see this if you don't have one of your own uh this is hands down uh one of the best documentaries that i've ever seen uh and certainly my favorite movie of the year and and of recent memory it spoke so clear and deep to me and i think it will for you as well Stu's a great guy so let's bring him all right, again, I want to thank again my guest, Stu Stone. Uh, you've got to see this movie. Um, thanks, Stu, so much for coming out. Like the minute I saw it, I got the producer on the phone, my producer, and I said, 
get this dude on the phone. He is so cool. Uh, and again, he would have been one of us. He would have been like, we talk about me, Stephen Crispin, the three musketeers, Stu and his friends. And we would have, if there was a sluggers here, we would have, uh, been regulars. We would have been, uh, uh, kindred spirits there. So bless you, Stu. And, and what a great movie. I know he's got some, a new project he's about to begin as well. And so, uh, we wish you the best of luck with that. And we hope to have him, him on again soon. Uh, as he mentioned there at the end of the program, uh, maybe have him back on to, in more of a, um, kind of a talking about like how the movie was made or uh, maybe like a teachable moment for independent filmmakers for our filmmaker series and things of that nature. So uh, anyway, uh, moving on here, I'm going to throw a couple more little facts at you and we're going to get Chaz Knight back on here uh, talking more about uh, sports and baseball. And he is a big metal guy. And I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to play some metal uh, this time. Uh, so let's go ahead and get to that right now. Okay, so as we told you in part one uh, about how I was dissed and left behind while everybody went and saw Metallica. Well, I had my day in the sun uh, that August. Metallica's Injustice for All tour returned to uh, Dallas, Texas, and me and Steve and Chris Todd all climbed in the back seat of... God, I don't even remember how the hell we got there, man. I remember laying... I was the smallest of, of everyone at that time, and I remember having to lay across like eight people uh, on the way home uh, just to have a ride there. Uh, anyway, and so um, so we did it. Metallica was our entire life. Opening that show was The Cult, who had, who had put out their album, Sonic Temple, uh, that year, and we just saw them uh, do that album in its entirety at the House of Blues in Dallas, celebrating the 30-year anniversary. And the song "American Horse" from that record actually uh, opens our um, our Spotify playlist from '89. So check that out. And you know, I would like to play something from Metallica, but now with the Mighty Met and the Mandatory Metallica Payola thing they do on Clear Channel, you can pretty much hear and um, anything from Metallica, and who are notorious for recording everything. There really is no rare Metallica B-side from the 80s. Everything that they recorded uh, or that they used, um, it wasn't until later. And even then, you know, uh, so anyway, so, but I did want to include that part uh, in the story. Uh, but what I wanted to mention was I was, there's so many great thrash albums that came out around that time. Uh, you know, Practice What You Preach uh, from Testament had come out which is also on our mixtape. And again, for the actual episodes, we wanted to include something, uh, you know, different there. So I remember around this time, I was really getting into, you know, looking for the heaviest thing I could find and the more obscure or if it was something that the other guys didn't have, uh, that would have been, alt you know, super attractive to me. Like, like, oh yeah, you're into that. Well, have you heard this? Like that, that's kind of the pre-internet kind of thing, you know, it's like, you know, when you're competitive at that age and you want to, uh, to, to be bringing, you know, new stuff and act like you're the man, like, oh yeah, well you don't know about this man kind of deal, right? So I was getting into a band, uh, called Nuclear Assault and man, I thought I was so cool when I had their album Handle With Care because nobody else did, right? Uh, anyway, so I'm going to play something off of that. That seems to kind of fit that vibe and that picture, and it would satisfy that you may not have heard of this uh, before or or, uh, or in a while. 
Uh, so again, this is off the album Handle with Care. This is the song Critical Mass, and we'll be back uh, with Chaz Knight and more sports talk on all things 1989. What's up? This is Rick Ockberger, the WWE sign guy. Oh my lord! So, if you're on Twitter, you can find me at the number one Loco Chaz. That's my Twitter handle. 
And if you want to check out my band, because I always got to promote my band, it's at, it's the, my Twitter handle for the band is at, at son, Red Leather Rocks. Come on. And they do rock. So come on. And of course, you always want to find us. You can subscribe on iTunes under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Tricky Kid TV. I've also got a profile on Adult Friend Finder, but I'll give that at the end of the show. <laughs> Is that real? Is that a real website? Have you never seen it? No. Oh, okay. Okay, Maybe good. I'm the asshole. No, not at all. Do your thing. But again, getting us back to 1989 and the innocence of that, I think of, talking about baseball, I think of some of the sports stuff, but I also think of some of the gaming. So uh, I want to hit you with a couple of, of, right. of things that happened in Shifting sports gears, I like it. and also in gaming. Okay, right. number one, okay, um, and I just talked about this because right now it's uh, we just had the, all, the MLB All-Star game, right? Yeah. And who and to me, I feel like and I talked about this my entire life for thirty years since. One of my favorite memories as a as a as a as a young person, as an adult, and I always talk about it, is the nineteen eighty nine All Star Game for, for Major League Baseball. It's got to be the greatest. People think about the twenty seven Yankees, but it's got to be the American League has got to be the greatest team ever assembled. Okay, you had Bo Jackson, Wade Boggs. Uh, golly, Don Mattingly, Mark McGuire, Ruben Sierra, I think you, uh, Cal Ripken. It, w- it was just murderers, murderers row, okay? And it's very famous because Bo Jackson and Wade Boggs both started the game with l- leadoff home runs back-to-back. Love it. And oddly enough, Ronald Reagan, who had just left the White House, uh, you know, the previous year. Right was on commentary for the first inning and struggling. So if you got a couple of minutes, yep, (laughs) I think that one's over the fence. (laughs) Oh, I think that one's over the fence too. (laughs) That was it. That was his commentary. And Vin Scully is the best in the business ever to do it, and he was trying to carry him. But just for a token, Google... 1989 MLB All-Star Game, Bo Jackson, uh, Ronald Reagan, whatever. It's one of the great. It's the greatest team in the history of baseball. It's, it, and That's then, great. It's a great moment there. And one of my, again, Steve Ainsworth sitting at his parents' house and watching that game together was one of the great greatest uh, memories I have. While smoking joints from the Slayer cassette case. Uh, that was later. Okay, uh, that night. That night. That night. Right. Uh, but that was that that defined. Like, like a public enemy was a soundtrack, the MLB All-Star Game was the summer of 89. It is the summer of 89. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you. So, uh, the, of course, the, you know, the Oakland A's um, uh, beat the San Francisco Giants in the World Series that year. And a lot of people might remember that there was an earthquake. earthquake. Yeah, now see that. Now I'm talking. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. And that was when and Ricky Henderson, of course, led his team. He won the, the, the MVP. Was that Moneyball? Were those the Moneyball years? Uh, that, that's much later. It's like 10 years later. Oh, yeah, okay. See, I tell you, I don't know anything about the baseballs. But here's, here's something interesting. I know you remember, but there's one little part maybe you don't remember, okay? Uh, let's see here. Uh, if you remember, uh, this was in August of that year that Pete Rose was banned for life. Boom. I agree with that too. I know Pete Rose is a total asshole, but as we mentioned earlier, uh, Mike Sch- Schmidt and the Phillies and all that are my entire life. 
And Pete Rose was on that 1980s World Series team as well as the 84 team that went back, to, or the 83 team that went back to the World Series. Um, and I know Pete Rose is an asshole, but he shouldn't be banned for baseball. He's, the, he's their all-time hit leader, right? Yeah, I mean, Hall of Famer. But here's something a lot of people don't remember. Uh, it was like August, I think August 26th, okay, when, uh, when Bart Giamatti banned him from baseball for life. A week later, on September 1st, Bart Giamatti drops dead of a heart attack. See karma. Bam! Or either that or you don't fuck with Pete Rose. That's right. <laughs> and his gangsters. That's right. Love that. Now, we come to a sad moment. Okay? Okay. I knew it was coming. I was just waiting for it. When you're 15 years old, you're not prepared to see your hero weep. Or see your hero become less than anything but immortal or, or perfect or Superman, right? Now, th- now, people might forget this, but there was a time before the internet. And, and, and what? Yes, I know, right? <laughs> and 80, so how we got information was very different. And, and I can't say in 89 that I ran home and watched the news or I was reading the newspaper, right? What about the Encyclopedia Britannica? Uh, I, 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 did get, <laughs> I did get those later. Those commercials, those commercials were great, too. Yeah. Uh, kind of more of a 90s thing, but, but still. Anyway, um, no. but I'm I... trying to get there. Right. I came home from school that day, and I guess it was probably on maybe the 6 o'clock news. And I remember my mom called me from my room. I was, you know, doing my homework, whatever. And she goes, she goes, hey, you need to get in here right now. And I was like, oh, my God, what's up? You know, because she wouldn't normally have done that. And I ran in there, and Mike Schmidt... My, to this day, my... Favorite baseball player ever. Not just that. He is like a god amongst men to me. Like the man. And he's on TV. And he's crying. And what the deal was, he had started the season in April. And he always said if he could not play at the, at the top of his game... That he would call it a he'd call it quits, and I guess by May, because this was in May, right? It was right before school had ended. He uh, decided he was he was going to retire, and so he actually would have also now this would been for the National League, but he would have been on and part of that um, that unforgettable 1989 All Star game I just mentioned, mm-hmm. because the fans still voted him to be a starter. Even, Even though, though he, he had retired in May, it's now July. He chose not to play, but he did appear on field in uniform uh, to uh, you know, but 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 chose not to play. Uh, so for me, that defines 1989 and one of the defining moments of my life. And one you of the most are of, a baseball guy. Yes, yes, very much. This so. is what we've learned from this episode. Is <laughs> yes. that you are a baseball guy. <laughs> yes, yes, and you know, or at least I've learned. It. And, you know, and let's not, not, not forget, uh, I guess you call this sports, but uh, uh, WrestleMania five, and you mentioned earlier, I think you mentioned Vanna White. I believe Vanna White was... was, was uh, One of the ring girls? She was like an announcer. Because back then they would have to bring in so, celebrities yeah. because back then the wrestlers couldn't... You know, now the wrestlers are the celebrities, but back then they needed to bring in outside people. And uh, Bob Euchre was speaking of baseball, yeah, was a big part of that. And Vanna White and all that. Uh, So there's that. Okay. Uh, So now, also when I think of 1989, um, and this is the comment I wanted to make was that I remember we were very, very poor. And our lives outside. Wait, how poor were you? 
dirt poor. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, at that age, you don't know you're poor. No, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't. Know, right. Really young. Yeah. And when I, I didn't even know we were poor until I, I knew we weren't rich, but I didn't think we were. I mean, it went to later. I was like, shit, man, we were like, yeah, okay. So anyway, so is a, a, a product of that is this was that it's probably looked back in the world of gaming in terms of video games because outside of playing the baseball and the metal and playing in the band and once again me and Steve Ainsworth oh my god busted obsessed with Nintendo okay obsessed smoking joints and smoking joints right and playing Nintendo anyway and so he uh, what was it so that summer they had come out with something called the power glove now this is way before the interaction and the Wii and all that whatever. This was before Michael Jackson, wasn't it? Michael Jackson. Just no, no. He had the power glove. Oh, you see what you did there? <laughs> Come back. So anyway, and so I got the power the glove. Video game glove. I remember for, for, for like oh, my yeah. birthday or something, and I couldn't wait to invite my friends over. And Steve came over and his brother Kenny. And, you know, they were trying to be cool and they were trying to use. I was like, isn't it great, guys? Isn't it wonderful? And it because it never would have occurred to me that it wasn't great. Yeah. And I wasn't did trying to. Did you let them wear the glove? Yeah, I, I did. Of course, I was. I was. I, I shared. I was. I was good. You know, a yeah. good, good friend. But here's, but here's what I'm trying to get across to you, though. It wasn't a thing where, like, I was like, I know this sucks, and I hope that they don't figure it out. I mean, I was that innocent. It was. It was. It was unthinkable. That's what a nerd I was. That this wasn't good. Okay, because it it could only be good, right? Mm -hmm. Because of my optimism and because you know it's the new thing, and my and they were trying to hang in there pretty good with me. They were like, (laughs) and you you know you know that Kenny was a little bit older. When do we tell him that the gloves suck? (laughs) Yeah, right. So how long do we let him keep going until we say, hey, dude, your glove sucks? So you know what you and I do when someone's running (laughs) off at the mouth? What do we? What do you and I do? When do we let him know? <laughs> no, we scratch our heads and we go. Uh, we always go, man. I, well, what, what, I, I even forgot it. We, I don't we, even we, know we, what. It, you know, remember we did it at Rock, Oklahoma. We go. Shit's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Shit's crazy. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it is, right? Okay, so Kitty Ainsworth in 1989 goes like this. He goes. He goes. He goes. He's like this. Doing it like flying a plane with his with hand, his yeah. and he goes, "I don't know, man." <laughs> <laughs> he basically did shit's crazy. Yeah, it was the '89 version of shit's crazy, man. You know, <laughs> which meant was this is terrible, right? Yeah, I don't know, man. Okay, so take you back for a second. Like, okay, it's now known as the worst video game of all time, but ET for the Atari. It's an unplayable piece of shit. But again, I was so poor in 83, 84, right? It was everything to you. It was, and, and e, I went as E.T. for fucking Halloween that year, right? It wasn't an option. Oh. Right. Oh, no. no. Right. 
And it wasn't until later where, where, when it came out, there was like some sort of documentary that came out about like how horrible this game was and they, all these people had put all this money into it and it kind of sunk the video game industry. And I was like, you know what? That game did suck. Yeah. So that I was aware of. But the glove, I was blissfully unaware. That, 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 and there is a documentary too out there. You should look it up. I think it's just called something like, you know, it's not the spinal tap, but like, like smell the glove. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I was a little older. I was 21, so right. I was. You, you were still. I mean, I was kind of not into that. Yeah. But what I was into was the Mexican version of ET. Have you? Do you know the Mexican version of ET? I do not. Yeah, Eddie Torres, the extra testicle. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. At the Howard Stern thing or something. Is no. Oh come on. No. What is that from? Cheech and Chong. Oh yeah, Cheech and Chong. Oh, yes. Yes. God. Of course. Of course. My joke fell flat. No. No. You're good. You're good. <laughs> you're like oh. So here are a, a, a few things. 89 was a very, you know, very pivotal year as well. The Game Boy was released that summer. Yeah, greatness, for sure. Uh, one of my early gaming you memories. You have a Game Boy on your phone, which yeah, I yeah, saw tonight. Yeah now, awesome. yeah, now my phone case on the back is a playable Game Boy. That's nuts. How cool is that, yeah, right? Yeah, Retro cool. gaming uh, case, phonecase.com. Check them out. Um for the NES, the original Nintendo, mm-hmm. the, the first Turtles game came out. You nerds might remember playing that. I lived for it. Such a nerd. Um, uh, to, to compete with that market, uh, whatever company came out with TurboGrafx-16, that didn't go very far. Uh, I can tell. <laughs> Sega introduced the Sega Genesis that summer, right. and that was also Kenny Ainsworth thing too, because I got in the glove, but then he had gotten the Genesis. Yeah, I mean, Sega had some wills. Yeah, 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 yeah they did. They did. But my favorite game of all time, besides Mike Tyson's Punch Out, came out in the summer of '89. We're talking about a day in the life here. I can remember making that journey to. We're almost done here. I can remember making that journey to the convenience store to get my circus and hip parader and faces. And the, Slurpee. And, and Slurpee or Slush Puppy, whatever. And while I was there, I would play at a place called Quick... Was it Quickway? Might have been Quickway, yeah. Quickway? Quick Mart, Quickway. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Quickway. And I would play 1942. They didn't come out that year, but next to it was Super Dodgeball. The greatest game. The violence of that game was so satisfying. And I can remember... And it was, was a video game. It was. And we could play it right now because I now have the Nintendo Classic that comes with like 30 games, but I hacked that shit and put 612 games. Oh my the God. entire Nintendo library. Every 80s game you can I do. And I, and, I, and I have the Super Nintendo Classic as well. But anyway, what I was going to say was my memory of that is I would, I would get my Hit Parader, my Slurpee, and I remember on the very back of the magazine, like on the back was a full-page ad because... It wasn't actually in 88, but, uh, but in 89, when it was really coming together, was Metallica's Injustice for All. Yeah. And they did their first video for one and all that. And it was weird because back then, if you can believe it, guys, nobody knew who Metallica was but us. Okay, They weren't on the radio. They, they didn't do videos. They weren't playing stadiums. They weren't doing any of that kind of stuff. And, huh. and it was weird because Metallica now had a video on MTV for yeah. one. Yeah. Okay, and then now they were, you know, like when you would watch back then, you'd watch the Grammys, but the Grammys, Slayer wasn't on the Grammys, you know? Uh, you know? Well, nobody cool was on the Grammys. Right, but Metallica famously lost oh, 
was that 89? In 89, famously lost to Jethro Tull. Oh, my God. A stain on American music right there. But that's what I think of that, that year. You oh. see what I'm saying? Of? I think of the Power Glove. I think Metallica <laughs> losing. I think of Metallica getting slapped with the think Power Glove. think of Mike Schmidt retiring. Yeah. I think of Jethro Tull. I think of Jethro Tull smacking, or Metallica getting smacked by the Power Glove. <laughs> and Mike Schmidt crying about it. And Mike Schmidt crying about it. Right. And then, and then, and then Chuck D and Flavor Flav saying, fight the power, yeah. man. You know? You gotta, you gotta, yeah. Uh, and we're talking about about about, about mall a mall episode. Remember, there was a board game called Mall Madness that year to introduce electronic talking Mall Madness. Wow! Uh, you were too old for that at that point. I probably should was too. But anyway, and <laughs> Coleco declares bankruptcy that year oh. and was acquired by Hasbro. So now we need to do uh, another song. I'm still pissed at Jethro Tull. I know that guy. I know with his locomotive breath and and his and his, and his and his aqua lung and, and all that freaking aqua lungs. Yeah. So I'll I'll do the song later. So we get it. So now we talk about things ending. What about some things beginning? Okay. Oh, well, like we're almost to a new decade. So yeah, I'm sure. Well, so it's like the launching pad for the next decade, right? So get ready here. So in 1989, these bands formed or put out like their first debuts. Right. Okay. Number one, a band that you love and still listen to all the time are the Black Crows. Oh, yes. The Shake Your Money Maker, That's baby. That's right, man. That That's was really came out in 89. 89. Uh, yeah, that's a good one right there. The Breeders started in 89. Cannonball? Well, that was later. but, oh. but the Breeders, <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know much about that. The Dixie Chicks started in 89. I've got a Dixie Chicks story if you want to hear it. Okay. Okay, real quick. Okay. So I went to college with the singer for the Dixie Chicks, Natalie Maines. Mm-hmm. So this was back when I was actually going to school. Yeah, with Natalie Maines. With Natalie Maines. In, we lived in Lubbock, but what? I went to a little two-year college called uh, South Plains College. For their music program, it's one of the, I guess one of, and in the nation, it was one of the best music, you know, schools for a two-year school. And I just happened to be going to school with Natalie Maine, so we had this class together called Ensemble, and we were in a van together. And she was a rocker chick back then. She was not a country girl, right? right? Okay. She was into rock, and um, and uh, well, this was like what year was this? Yeah, this was like. Did the Dixie Chicks come out in 89? 89. But but it wasn't with Natalie. It was with the other singer. Okay. So See, so they had a different singer when okay, they started I, out. That I did not know that. Let okay. me tell you the story. Okay, I'm ready. So they had a different singer when they first came out, but then Natalie joined the band later because the, the original singer, she wasn't cutting the mustard or whatever. Got it. But my story about Natalie Maines is that we were in a band together, and she was a rocker chick, right? And her dad is Lloyd Maines, the world-famous steel guitar player, played in the Maines Brothers Band. Huge country. If you're a Texas Texas country, West Texas, uh, you know Lloyd Maines. Now he's a record producer, and he's produced a lot of the artists you know you hear. Like, he's known in the country, you know. Yeah. Right. So he's trying to convince his daughter, well, you should do country music because I can hook you up. I can get you in. She's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to play country music. And uh, when we graduated, we all graduated from college. Uh, she ended up, you know... Finally, she joined the Dixie Chicks and then, you know, became famous. But the best story I have about Natalie Maines, and I can say it here on, on, on our little show here. Um, I was at a party one night, 
And uh, I had, of course, this is 89, so I'm like partying. Like, I'm yeah. a serious party. Yeah. Uh, 89, 90, 91. I, th- I think we were in, I was, I was in a two-year college for about three or four years. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So, so I was at this party, and uh, I think I took some mushrooms or something. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I had a whole bag of mushrooms. And, uh, and uh, I was giving away, and I was taking some. And then Natalie shows up. We had a barn party, you know, with the bonfires and the kegs and the barn party. And uh, I actually offered mushrooms to Natalie Maines. I was like, do you want some mushrooms? She's like, no, I think I'll pass. <laughs> I was already, you know, already, already in, you know, another universe. But that's what I remember about back then. So, I, yeah, Dixie Chicks, Natalie Maines. I went on a little tangent. No, I love that. That's what I want to hear. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been running off. After graduated college, okay, she went on to join. She wasn't an original member of the Dixie Chicks. See, I did not know that. Yeah, See? she came afterwards, and that's when they got famous. They weren't famous in 89. They were They were probably locally famous. But they're, they're, I don't think their debut album came out until like the mid-90s. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, see, that's what I, I've been running off of the mouth. I, I need something from you I just here. wanted to give you a I love it. I offered her mushrooms, and then she became a famous star. See, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of local stuff, there actually are some local uh, bands that are still either rocking or that you know of or heard of. That's well, I, yeah, I'm, I can think of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, the Toadies began in 1989. They had a very, very first really? show opening for Fugazi at our friend Kelly Parker's old club, the Axis Club, back in 1989. That's where they started, 89. 89, really? that year. That's interesting. Uh, a, some guys that I was hanging out with, shout out to Anorexic Cafe, uh, that were rocking around that time, opening for the Toadies a bunch and uh, playing all the clubs back then. A like shout out to, to, to Keith Radens and uh, uh, Chris and Jeff Adcock. Uh, Chris was actually the, the best man at my wedding. So wow. we're still... Uh, all this time. All this time here. And if you listen uh, to the intro to this very show, you're hearing a song called Good Day by a band called The Buck Pets. And the album that that came on was a self-titled debut for Island Records uh, by a band called The Buck Pets. So when you hear the intro, yeah, I I still do uh, up there. But it was also now they didn't start then. They but but uh, 1989 was the very first time that I ever saw Pantera. Man, yeah, like so 89. What, what came out in 89? So they came out with an album uh, called it was Power Metal. Power Metal, I think, was 89. Was it feels like it might have been 88? But 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 uh, I'll have to uh, hang on. like 80 like the year before. But uh, but still. This was now. I'm 15, so I went to see Pantera. Projects from the Jungle was probably like 80. That was before, but see, it was something. Even though they didn't start in '89, it was like they'd only had had Phil was only been in the band for like a year. But that's right. They were the like momentum. a new band. The momentum was in '89, right? That's, that's right. When they were about to break. That's right. That's right. And so I, so Chris Adcock, once again, and I, we went and saw Pantera at the old Joe's Garage. Oh, those were the glory days. Back in the day, man. If you're from Dallas. Fort Worth, Joe's Garage, Glory Days. For sure. Glory. Now, the D- Dallas counterpart, of course, would have been the basement. Right. But the basement wasn't all ages, so I, I didn't, I couldn't go to the basement. Right, but you could. And, I, didn't, and I was 15, I didn't have a car anyway, right? And so, and they were playing, uh, Enrico Cafe had been playing at Joe's Garage, and, and recipes to Ab, he used to, remember, he used to run the place. Yeah. For, he'd get into a show for five measly bucks. Remember, five measly, he always would say that, five measly, measly bucks. 
And I remember seeing Pantera about two or three times uh, that year. That for me that summer, because that was the first time I'd ever had gone to a, a quote local show. Period. And a local band. A local band, <laughs> and it was like as good or better than like because at that point I'd only been to a handful of shows. Yeah. In '89, this is what's so crazy. In '89. Once again, Steve Ainsworth. What defines '89 for me is that he and I went to the. His balls yeah, down. man. He and, I, he and I went to the Headbangers Ball Tour. Oh my god! In 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 April of that year, thirty years, and, and that was Exodus, Halloween, and Anthrax. Nice. On the uh, Stadia Euphoria tour, and it was one of the first nights that Joey Tempesta, who was um, uh, who was Charlie Benante's um, drum tech, started playing drums for Exodus, and he now plays drums for the Cult and has for a long time. And the Cult, Wait, Joey Tempesta, he also played with Rob Zombie. He's played for everybody, right? And he's- Plays with Ozzy too. Hey, uh, maybe. Okay, yeah, no, but no, no, right, right now I can tell you. Right. Okay. <laughs> so here's the deal. So he now plays for the Cult, who came out with their album Sonic Temple that year, and I what? saw them open for Metallica that year. So, but here's what drives me crazy: we lived in Crowley. Okay, we didn't listen to the radio. There was no internet. We didn't read the freaking paper. Do you have any concerts I went to in '89? Two, but not counting Pantera and the local stuff, right? I went and saw the Headbangers the- Ball in February, and that that fall around September, um, I right when school started Cold again. Metallica was at the old Starplex. Well, what Dallas. Metallica tour was it? Injustice for All. It was okay. So I saw the Injustice for All tour. In Lubbock. In Lubbock, right. But it was Queensryche that opened up. Yeah. So Wasn't that Operation Mindcrime? It would have been. Yes. And so, here's the deal. They came here twice. Here's where I really will bust Steve Ainsworth balls. Remember how I said earlier how he was a bit of a bully? One of the biggest heartache, like... Talk about what about Stranger Things earlier and being abandoned by your friends and, and them like kind of shitting on you and making you feel kind of alone. Uh-oh. So Metallica did come through in February of 89 with Queensryche. Yeah. Okay. And somehow all my friends conspired to go. Without you. Without me. And Steve Ainsworth was the fucking ringleader. Dun, 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 dun. For whatever reason, we were on the outs. We were, and he was a bully. People were scared of him. I was scared of him, right? Because he was bigger, and, and, he, and he, he, he just seemed unhinged, right? Now I know where you're busting his balls. Yeah, man. And so, anyway, and they all went and saw Metallica without me. I got something that'll make you feel better. What's that? The show sucks. <laughs> no, I love it. Coliseum, Queensryche, Metallica. And we saw Queensryche. Um, we had seats right on the side. Great seats, you know. And um, I think I might have been even working for the radio station at, in Lubbock at the time, but I uh, had good seats. Uh, we had snuck in some joints, you know, kind of, we put them in a Slayer case in our back. Right, right, right. Well, no, we, yeah. we snuck in some joints. And so, um, yeah, Queenswike went on and uh, they were great. Operation Mindcrime. Yeah, hello. Greatness. And we were already pretty high. But then... We, we told ourselves, as soon as the lights go out for Metallica, we're going to just, you know, we had, we'd saved a joint for the, for the Metallica. So, man, the lights went down and justice for all. We're like going to see Metallica. It's so great. We just light up. We start like hot boxing, token up this joint. We're getting really hot, trying to suck it down as fast as we can. And all of a sudden, we just feel these hands on our shoulders. 
and like literally jerking us up. It was Lubbock police. They pulled us out of there and we missed the whole show. They took us out. They, they didn't arrest us, but they kicked us. They made us, you know, throw the pot on the ground and stomp it with our feet. And they kicked us out of the venue and go home. Don't come back. So we saw like the first song by Metallica. Oh my. <laughs> that was it. And I love that and Justice for All. I mean, I listened to that for like the whole summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean it was We're it was, drinking blackened we're drinking blackened whiskey know, right here. It, Metallica was everything to me. Yeah, me too. So um yeah, that was I mean God. fucking eighty nine. Well, at least you saw a fucking song. I saw one. My song. friends yeah. left me. But I had seen them on the Master Puppets tour. I seen them on the Ride the Lightning tour. I, Again, I was a little older. You were older, right? You, I saw, I saw those. You two get to tours. see Cliff Burton and all that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But it was the first Jason Newstead. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I yeah, saw Cliff right. Burton. Yeah. So, so that's my story. I love it. So I got bullied by the police. At least you had Steve Amesworth, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I got bullied by the police. They kicked me out of the show. But that shit hurt, though. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I still then, remember that story. Okay, you better got kicked out of the show. I got kicked out of our band. Okay, like I mean, they 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 wanted nothing. It still hurts. They wanted nothing to do with me. Now, here's a story you'll really enjoy. Are you ready? I may need another shot for this one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, oh my god! I mean, okay. So the shot is poured. Uh, I can ease my pain here, and I'll have pictures of this up at Tricky dash kid.com you actually can see what i look like and you got to send me some pictures so they can see what you look like in 1989 now i'm not wearing any clothes uh, well i mean but it's not much different from 89 right <laughs> anyway so it's metallica so check this out so here's what happens mm. and i'll show you this picture and you'll laugh your ass off <laughs> i was in a band with Steve Ainsworth, again, Chris Todd, wherever you are, sir. What's the name of the band? Okay, well, we went through a couple of names, but it wasn't until we were pressed to have to name a name, and this is where you're going to laugh, because this is way before Metal uh, Metalocalypse, all right? Our band was called Deathlock. Not Death Clock, but Deathlock. We were nerds. There was a comic book character named Deathlock, right? I get it. But anyway. Nothing wrong. Did you, how'd you spell it? Uh, that's important. D E T H L O K. Oh, so okay, that's right. metal. That's metal. Very metal. Okay. Okay. But now I can get real dark here and real deep. Again, we were super poor. My mother slept on a fucking mattress in the living room and had no money and spent all of her money getting me this drum set because she loved me and believed in me and wanted me to do well. And I because I was that's a good kid. Awesome. Because I was a good kid. Okay. Shout out to my mother, who's still my hero uh, and still kicking ass. Um, she had done this for me. Now, it wasn't a fucking Tama rock star with Zildjian cymbals, but it was a drum set and it was awesome, right? <laughs> Only for these fucking assholes to like be like, yeah, uh, like, like as if like they had like some sort of record, con- like, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like as if the, the record companies were knocking yeah. down their door. Roy's bringing us down. If we're yeah. ever going to get to the next Ex- level, <laughs> we got to like, get rid of Roy. Yeah, yeah, something I was like Dave Mustaine, you know, they yeah. were, they were being signed. He's always high. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was still watching was, game shows and baseball. We got to get rid of him, man. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, him and his fucking cartoons and the Nintendo. Yeah. He's like Stephen Adler. He's like a disease in our band. I, if I have to watch Arsenio Hall one more fucking time with this guy, 
That's all he does. That's all he does. He's got to go. Yeah. But, you know, nobody was interested in these fucking guys. There was nobody else to play with. Like, why? Right? And, and so, so you're I, out. I was out. And, 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 and in their defense, I did suck. And then they got Vinny Paul and the rest is history. In their defense, I did suck. Okay, all right, but still, what the fuck? I, 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 we all sucked back then. Yeah, I man. Mean, that, honestly, we all did suck back then. But something really amazing happened that fall. Okay, at school. Now, keep in mind. Is this the comeback? Maybe. Okay. Now, keep in mind. This also was transitional for me because when I left school in the in the spring in '89, I was in middle school. But when I started school in the fall of 89, I'm now in high school. Coming of age. So very pivotal time, right? That's the whole reason you wanted to do this show. That's what I'm saying, man. Okay, now. What was her name? So, right? (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, her her name was Golden Axe. No, no, (laughs) no. Uh, They came out that year. See, I'm a big nerd. I think you are. Okay, now. What the deal was, was that Apparently, Steve and Chris were now jamming with this guy named Michael, and who was a complete fucking asshole, and uh, like a fucking asshole. I mean, just such an asshole. Wait, and, was he an asshole? He was an asshole. <laughs> anyway, and so they were trying to enter the school talent show. Now, here's where I, I need for you to take seriously here, okay? Seriously. Is pull it together over here. This wasn't the school talent show that happens on Tuesday, all right, at like 4 o'clock. This is the Saturday night. In front of the student body. It's a small town. This is a talent show that was happening outside of school hours on a Saturday night, okay, in front of the entire freaking town like i'm like 600 people came to this so it was the student body and their parents right well apparently steven chris and michael had were going to do metallica's for whom the bell tolls and they were going to have their crowd favorite right and yeah especially to to the the parents of of crowley texas on a saturday 989 um and they were going to use their new drummer nice kid uh i forget his name but he was like 12 that's how bad I suck. This 12-year-old totally took my spot. That's how bad I suck, right? But I it was like one of those things like, like it was one of those things where like 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 revenge body. Yeah. You know? Like like when you get dumped and you're like, I'm gonna get my revenge body and make them regret it. Man, I practiced every single day. Well, anyway, they had already entered the talent show, but the deal was was that the other drummer was too young and he didn't go to our school. And that disqualified them. So if they were going to play in this in the school talent show, they had to have somebody that went to school there. So that's when they came fucking crawling back to me. Oh my god! And it was very much a thing of like, okay, like, but it wasn't like, would you like to be back in our band again? It was like, we got this opportunity. Don't fuck this up for us, kind of style, right? And I let them fucking push me around back then, and I like practiced my ass off. Come showtime. Dude, you were ready. For whom the bell tolls ready. And I don't mind telling you. There, I wish I could have a clip of it somewhere. I know there's a videotape of it floating around somewhere. I haven't seen it in probably 20, 25 years. I do have pictures, though. And it'll be on our website at tricky-kid.com. Uh, but anyway, needless to say, I rocked that shit. We all rocked that shit. Uh, except for Michael, whose vocals kind of sounded like he was like like he was barking. It kind of sounded like like, sounded like like Metallica if it was sung by like uh, what, what was the what was the dog that year? Spuds McKenzie. 
It was kind of like 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 he was like like barking like you know like you know what I mean you know something kill man to die you know uh, anyway needless to say we rocked it and we won that shit you won we won and so go to our website you'll see a and so what happened after that you'll see that we had a newspaper clipping what? we were in the newspaper and get this. We were all good kids. We worked our asses off. We won the talent show. Is that the greatest day of your life? At that moment, yes. And we'd all had just worn plain black t-shirts and jeans. And there was a petition by adults in the town of Crowley in 1989 to put pressure on them to make us give up our award because we wore black. I'm not kidding. What? I'm not kidding. Good kids. I was on the freaking honor roll, man. Okay. I was, we kicked ass, but because we wore black, those devil worshipers should not be rewarded for this. Backwards times back in 89. You ain't kidding. All right. You think it was 69, but no, this was 89 in Mr. Crowley, Texas. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, I'm glad you, uh, Release those demons, man. Yeah, you know it. So there's a lot more we could get into, but it is time to kind of wrap it up. So I'm going to have to do that part by myself, but I am going to do this with you very quickly. Okay, give okay. it to me. All right. So uh, a couple of births here, some beginnings and some endings here. Burps? Birth. Oh, birth. <laughs> like birth. Yeah, but like Bertha. Okay. <laughs> so number one uh, is... Uh, yeah, let's get back to... Daniel Radcliffe. Harry Potter was born in 89. Oh, he was. That's right. I just watched Harry Potter for the first time in my life. You did? Yeah, the, the, I've been watching them all for the first time ever. We're uh, very dialed in here onto the show into cosplay and probably the most famous and popular and probably the hottest cosplayer in the game, Jessica Nagiri, was born in 1989. These are all people who are turning 30 this year. Hot. My two girls... From my favorite show in the last five years, Pretty Little Liars, talking about hot. My girls, Lucy Hale and Ashley Benson, who just revealed that she's actually in a lesbian uh, relationship. Good uh, for her. That's right. Okay, Lily Collins, Phil Collins' daughter, who, if you've seen, <clears throat> speaking of Metallica, you know that the only time they let their music out and license it was through a guy named Bruce Sinoski and a guy named Joe Berlinger for a series of documentaries they made called Paradise Lost. I love it. About, of course, the West Memphis Three. Um, Joe Berlinger has now made a movie about Ted Bundy called The Ted Bundy Tapes and he even did a... Uh, uh, an actual an action film, a, a biopic. Lily Collins plays his longtime girlfriend that never wanted to believe it. And that's actually Phil Collins' daughter. Is that on Netflix? It is. And also... The Bundy... T- no, no, I'm not thinking... I'm both thinking. of them. Both of them. The, 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 uh, I forget what that one's called. Uh, Zac Efron just did the Bundy. That's, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. That, that movie, Joe Berlinger directed that. Wow, okay. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. And I believe... And I think James Hetfield is in it. I think... Yeah, so. yeah. He plays the uh, a prison cop. guard or something. Or, yeah, like, yeah. A, like a cop or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Lily Collins is the girlfriend. This is Phil Collins' daughter. That's interesting. Okay. And in that, oh my God, hot. (laughs) Dear Lord. And also in 1989 was when they actually executed Ted Bundy. Oh. See, it all comes back to to 89. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Taylor Swift, of course, famously has an album called 1989. She was born there? So Taylor Swift turns 30 this year if you want to feel old. And if you can be, if you can believe this, not that we, so we're going to avoid politics, but Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, 
known online as AOC, who I freaking love, and I don't get into politics, but all you corny MAGA hat wearing fuck, fuckers out there, <laughs> she is the but shit. But I'm not getting political. She is the shit. And I can't believe she's super hot too. I love her, I, and I love I, her, I, and I, love I stand her. by her and I stand want with her. To be with her, and I'll tell you something kind of funny. I, I always hate her. it when my favorite musicians or people try to throw their hat into the political ring when they don't know anything what they're talking about. Nikki Six recently tweeted this week. He goes, "Hey man, is it just me or does AOC kind of seem like a basket case?" And I wrote him back. It's just you. <laughs> and I hate that. because Why I, do rocks? I mean. And I love Motley. He's, he's a big time anti-Trump guy. Why would yeah. he say that? I don't know. I was like, did somebody get a hold of his phone? Like, I love Motley. I love Nikki. Don't say sure. that kind of crap, right? Well, when you get old, you get weird. That's true. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> exactly. So we talk about how, of course, Ted Bundy, now now we're getting the deaths here, is that Ted Bundy was executed uh, in, in 89. Uh, some of the people that we lost was John Cassavetes, of course, American author and, and actor. Abby Hoffman, who, of course, wrote, famously wrote, Steal This Book. Uh, Lucille Ball passed away in 89. I remember that big, being, being a huge, big deal. Greatness. Also along with, with Betty Davis. Kind of a, and you a, know what she had, right? She had Betty Davis's eyes. <laughs> uh, a lot of strong females that year. We lost Lucille Ball, Betty Davis, and unfortunately, uh, also Gilda Radner. If you remember, she was, uh, yes. you know, Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana from Saturday Night Live. And probably anything else you're going to learn about me. If oh, I no. had to, like li- I haven't learned enough. If I had to list my top five of the most influential people. Besides, my family and friends have had on my life. And me. You'd be surprised to learn that one of them would be Mel Blanc. Oh, cartoons. Looney Tunes, That's right. right. Yeah. The voices of the Looney Tunes. If I couldn't be a baseball player, I wanted to be kind of a voiceover actor. Not actually an actor. What to you? I became. A, I, I succeeded anyway. I, did, I became a podcaster. That's right. Right, right. You're making films now. That's right. That's right. Having babies. And Drinking we'll, beer. We'll get to this in a second, but in 1989, uh, speaking of the movie I'm making about, of course, the legendary King's X coming your way soon. Also, with her first album in 11 years coming out soon, their magnum opus, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, released so in 1989. So underrated. One of the greatest albums of all time, being King's X, is amazing. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners out there? Well, I feel like... I've got to know you in a whole different way. I thought I Good. knew you, but I didn't know you at all. I've, the inner nerd, that <laughs> I've always wondered if, you know, I've, I've actually met the inner nerd in you tonight. Yeah. Baseball yeah. nerd. Video so game nerd. I've, Debbie, I feel Debbie like Gibson lover. I feel like you've, well, I knew about all the Tiffany Dead of you, but I just feel like you've opened up the inner nerd to me tonight. <laughs> and I feel like privileged that you felt as comfortable as you have. To release your flatulence and <laughs> your inner nerd in the style that you have. I don't know why you would say that because I have, I have, anybody that would listen, I would tell them how much I love baseball. And, and honestly, it. listen, I mean, 1989, I got to admit, it's a blur. It's a blur for me. I mean, a lot of these things we talk about, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. But for me, it was heavy drug use. It was acid and ecstasy and... Lots of, <laughs> lots of drinking and random sex with who knows who. Right. But I got through it. 
You did. Yeah. And you don't even thought but of it. Thanks now. for bringing it all back. No worries. Thanks for. It was a time of experimental. I probably took LSD for the first time in '89 too. Yeah, you know, I mean, and there was all kinds of things going on. I was I was already in college, so. But it was but it was still very much an innocent time, you know, and and but things were changing. Things sad. were changing all around the world, though. I'm gonna miss the. Do miss the eighties? Uh, I every day. Yeah, but if you remember, and, and I have to do this, do this solo. But the Berlin Wall came down in nineteen eighty nine, and if you remember how the actual moment, the people will always remember of how the eighties actually ended, was David Hasselhoff singing "Looking for Freedom" at the Berlin Wall on New Year's Eve. That's how they went out. That's how the eighties went out. <laughs> What's going on? The greatest decade in the world went out like that. With it, Hasselhoff. The Hoff. Does it get any fucking more badass than oh that? Oh, my God. I, uh, this has been awesome. I, 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 I enjoyed I, it. I enjoyed it. Chaz, thank you again for joining us this week and uh, sharing your memories and we telling your stories. Again. We have to do a mall show. We have, yep. Are we ever going to get into the 90s? Eventually, yes. I completely don't remember the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe people could refresh your, uh, his memory. Uh, tweet at Chaz at tell him again. One, the number one, Loco Chaz, L-O-C-O-C-H-A-Z. That is the handle on Twitter. One Loco Chaz, L-O-C-O-C-H-A-Z. And of course, you can find us at Tricky Kid in the number two. That's Tricky Kid in the number two. Obviously, we're always we're also on Facebook under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. I'm on Instagram under DJ Tricky Kid, as well as Facebook under DJ Tricky Kid. And, and I'm on Adult Friend Finder for the Lonely Housewives that <laughs> went apart. <laughs> and uh, man, a live. St- Thank my man Chaz for joining us as always. Uh, always a great time to have him on, and uh, he has uh, done several uh, episodes with us. And he's a name in, in, in radio and rock radio here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Anybody who grew up in this area uh, remembers him from the Eagle, and he's just this kind of wild, uh, loud mouth, wild all the time. He's in, and check out his band Red Leather. They're always kind of kicking ass around here. They're like an '80s uh, kind of a hair metal tribute band. Um, a few more uh, fun facts I wanted to include. We're talking about sports. Uh, also, um, in 1989, Nolan Ryan struck out Ricky Henderson uh, to become uh, um, the only person to throw his 5,000th strikeout. And let me tell you, talking about sports memories, man. Uh, again, Steve Ainsworth. And just to show you, I talked about this a little bit in, in episode one. Uh, unthinkably. Uh, they didn't air this game. The Rangers really weren't the best team in 1989. They really weren't a team that people took seriously. But Nolan wanted to finish his career. Um, and he still struck out like 300, pe- 300 strikeouts like that that season. And he hit the 5,000 with Nolan Ryan. And I remember listening to this with his parents on the radio in their living room. Uh, again, talking about sitting around watching TV campfire style. Imagine sitting around the radio listening to a baseball game. That's how into it we were. And doing it as a family. And I think that they ordered pizza. And just just one of those amazing moments. I remember Steve would do the uh, an impression of the, um, the announcer for years. Because for whatever reason, the announcer would get all excited. And he's like, is he going to do it? And uh, these are the radio announcers, not the ones that would have been on TV, like Steve Busby or whatever. And I remember he would go, oh, and he didn't happen. He would go, not this time. 
puppies. I have no idea why he would say that. But uh, anyway, that was kind of part of our uh, nomenclature for years. Not this time, puppies. So that was such a, a great memory. And then again, we were talking about uh, Metallica uh, being our entire life. And we've and I finally got to see them with the gang in August of 89. Well, come that October, if you want to talk about some things, talking about, about we were talking about the, the Power Glove um, being released. So anyway, we'll get into that in a second, but I wanted to mention this was that, so come that October, me, Steve, and Chris uh, played in um, the school talent show. And we talked about this a little bit. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, but man, what a freaking memory that was. Because this wasn't like, again, where you would play the school talent show on a week, uh, you know, during school hours, uh, you know, during the weekday. Like, we didn't play at three o'clock, uh, you know, during fifth period in front of a bunch of bored, uh, maybe they were bored, but, uh, you know, like 30 members of our, you know, school student body. You know, this was like on a Saturday evening in, in Crowley, Texas. And uh, gosh, it was so amazing because it was like there's nothing else to do in that town. So it was the entire school and their parents and like 500 people filled the Crowley High School Auditorium, the old high school uh, back then. And while everybody else was doing song and dance, uh, me, Steve and Chris with another gentleman named Michael Hurtado, we uh, as Deathlock, <laughs> way before Metalocalypse. We uh, we jammed uh, Metallica's "For Whom the Bell Tolls" and won, my friends. Uh, so we also have pictures of that up at trickykid.com. You can see Deathlock, uh, Deathlock winning uh, the Crowley High School 1989 school talent show for our category. So, anyway, great, 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 great memories of that, um, and so much more. And we'll be talking about. And this is what we're going to have to do like a part four, man. There's just so much going on. Also in October, again, I mentioned at the top of the show that the Power Glove was released and that great ad with the Ecto Cooler for High C and all that. God, this thing sucked. Uh, so many albums I ended up getting into later. Uh, Chris Todd was actually responsible for kind of turning us on to more of the industrial side of the kind of the natural progression of the of the of heavy music was kind of leaning towards that way. And um Perfect for, for Halloween, like Ministries, a, 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 a Mine is a Terrible Thing to Taste, the debut from Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine, and again, I mentioned earlier, um, not quite industrial, but of course, but like a different take on heavy music was with Nirvana's Bleach coming out, and we didn't get into those until later, but at um, uh, that time, I was still into the thrash um, heavily, uh, could not be more into it. Um, but again, also on the pop side, and I mentioned that uh, Tiffany is coming to the Texan in Greenville, Texas, this coming Sunday, uh, September the 8th. It's such an amazing space where it's just like 115 people that comes with dinner and parking and just such a unique, beautiful venue right there downtown Greenville that was saved by a former customer as a child that didn't want to see this childhood institution Go by the wayside. And now I'm pleased to bring you uh, Barbara Horan, uh, who is the proprietor and owner, who made her dream a reality of resurrecting and renovating the historic Texas the Texan theater. Uh, she bought the building in 2010, and she immediately began the, this painstaking process of turning this vacant, long-dormant venue uh, into a showpiece for downtown Greenville. 
and uh, I could not be uh, more excited about that she's doing this. Looking forward to the show this Sunday. And now let's talk with Barbara Horan all about it. So talk about your inspiration here, because I know that you are from Austin, but or I'm sorry, you uh, you moved to Austin when you were you were 18, but you grew up in Greenville. Yes, I grew up in Greenville. I was I went to this theater when I was a, a little kid. Oh, okay. What was the what was the first thing you saw there? I don't remember actually. I know the first thing I saw without my parents. My older brother and sister brought me to the movies to see Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh, and wow. And we had to park about three blocks away, which was no problem when we came, but I there were banshees in the movie, and I was sure the banshees were going to take me away on the way to the car. <laughs> but it's those great memories that, you, that, that stay with you forever, though. Yeah, and there had been, um, part of the inspiration for this was the neon. I remember the neon on this theater when I was little. And then uh, found out uh, there were six theaters downtown, but there's no remnant of any of them. The only thing left of all six is the neon in my theater. So I didn't want it to disappear along with all the rest of them. Uh, okay, so so, 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 so that was your so that was your inspiration. And so if you so there were six theaters downtown Greenville, circa what uh, circa around what years? Probably thirties, forties. Okay. And then when um, they might have been traveling theaters too. This one was vaudeville, and pretty much when everything stopped in World War Two, all the travel stopped. The there wasn't another live show on this stage after that until I opened in fourteen. Oh and my! Started with a live show, um, The Odd Couple. Uh, uh, yeah, with uh, with, with Jody Dean, who was with Jody a, Dean, with, who was in a, a local cast. Yeah. Yep. And Jody Dean is for, for we have a global audience here. So Jody Dean, just to fill you in, is a local uh, stalwart. He is a fixture on 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 radio here, and he also has a successful radio career in America, you know, nationwide. But really, in the D- Dallas Fort Worth area, he is a beloved figure. So, so, uh, so th- th- let's kind of streamline this for a second. So, when you were going to that theater as a kid, uh, mm-hmm. what years was that? Oh, uh, 60s. It closed in 1974, okay. and I was like 12 then, so. Okay, so so in the 60s, and, and what, was it called the Texan then? Yes, it was called the Texan. It was so funny, because somebody said, what are you going to call, you have the theater, what are you going to call it? And I said, I have like a 30-foot blade outside, neon blade, that says Texan. I think that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, and, I mean, is that what it was called whenever you were going there? Yeah, when I was going here, gotcha. it was it opened as the Texan in 1934. Oh, I see. And okay. Then stayed the Texan that whole time. It closed in 1974 as the Texan, so it went dark, and then um, for till 2010, till 2014. So I guess 30 years. Wow. So walk. Um, so walk me. Th- again. So walk me through this then. Okay. So you have yeah. had, had spent all those years since you were 18. Uh, so that would be in the late seventies in Austin, and then you. What did you like? All the other theaters, like you said, had been even torn down and destroyed. Was the te- right. was the Texan next to go? And is that why you saved it? Well, it could have oh. gone. The, a lady owned it. I knew the lady that owned it, and she didn't care. She was just going to sell it. Um, so it could easily have gone the way of the rest of them. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure it didn't. 
And we're glad that you didn't. But I guess what I'm, I guess what what I want our listeners to know is that when did it be, when did it land on your radar? Is what I mean. Like you're in Austin. When did you find out uh, that it was up for sale? I mean, had you been thinking about it? Were you keeping tabs on it? That kind of thing. Well, in about the year 2000, 2001, I was looking for properties. I never was disconnected. My brother still lived in town, and okay. my mom lived in town. So okay. I was up here from Austin all the time. And um, my brother and I were looking for a place in 2000s, and he looked all over town, and we finally settled on a bed and breakfast that he still runs. But then, you know, nine years later, the lady that owned it just said, okay, I'm done, I want to sell today. And she had the same price that she had sort of toyed with 10 years earlier. So I said, sure. And it never was actually on the market as such. We just knew the owner and she was ready to be done with it. And I bought it. Amazing. And what you've done with it since has been amazing. Tell her. Thank you. Well, so this, this, it also, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller theater, but you have brought such big, uh, you know, again, like, you know, nationally recognized, globally recognized things. Uh, the, the capacity was about 115 people, right? Well, the capacity when I bought it, well, if the seats had been in it, was 700. Okay. So I took a 700-seat movie theater and turned it into, now it's 114-seat dinner theater. Oh, wonderful. And so you guys also serve dinner there? Yeah, every show has food involved. It's either, in fact, when we opened, our appetizers that night were brown and brown sandwiches and green sandwiches to go with the odd couple. <laughs> People that know the odd couple will understand. I, I do know that. I, I <laughs> <laughs> so we tried to coordinate, when we had the Ray Price tribute, right about, it was almost exactly a year after he died, um, we asked his wife what his favorite foods were. So not just, it wasn't just the music of Ray Price, but it was also his favorite dinner. See, that we served. see, that's what I'm talking about, right there. You're not going to get that anywhere else. You're not going to, you know. Right. I mean, it's great that people, you know, are let's say may, may pay tribute to somebody, but to really create that 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 experience that's uh, that's about and for that person, and, and to go that extra mile, and that's mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of a Texan thing, though, isn't it? Too, you know. I mean, we're people from the South. When we're going to do something, we're going to do it right. Yeah, that we, I think we do. Um. Go ahead. I was just saying that's why the experience here is not necessarily for everybody because it's a, a true fan would want to know that kind of stuff. And we're only in a room with 100 people, which when I bring Tony, Tony, Tony or Air Supply, um, the cost is about the same as in the big stadiums and I only have 100 seats instead of thousands. So, so how, how do you offset that cost then? I just put it in the ticket price. Right. So, I don't, yeah. At the moment, we're just, it's, the ticket price is 90% cost. That's Right. So but, so when you get like a Tony, Tony, Tony or, or somebody that can, you know, fill a room that has like 500 people, um, and but yours is 114, that's, that's, that's a, would you actually have to raise the price by like five times? And by doing so, but you give them an extra experience that's, that's, worthy of that of that higher price right most of the, the, the room feels very intimate and then on top of that um most of the time i've negotiated a meet and greet and they're actually going to get to shake hands with 
Oh, wonderful, wonderful, and that I mean, and that's that's you know again the intimacy. Uh, again, of course, it is a, a higher ticket price, but you're not getting your your typical show. You're getting this almost like they're playing in your living room. You get to be in this historic building, and like you said, uh, more times than not, you're going to get to also meet the artists. And how often does that happen, right? So, I also tell when I welcome everybody from the stage, I welcome them to my house. Oh, let's see. Welcome to my house. See, I mean, how wonderful is that? And you know, and I'll tell you this. I'll share this with you, with you Barbara. Is that I uh, grew up. I was I was born in in Little Rock, Arkansas. Moved to Texas when I was about thirteen, and but moved to New York City uh, whenever I was thirty. Um, about fi- about fifteen years ago, and I had a great time there. I was there for almost ten years. Had a great time, but it's things like what you just said. That they would never, they could never understand, and they could never understand my disappointment because I was, I, I expected those things. Do you know what I mean? Being Southern, I, I mean, because that's what I would do if I had my own theater. That's what I would do, and you would. And so I, I, I relate to you on that on such a profound level, and I, it's something that I, that I, I want to support, um, and also experience, which I'm looking forward to doing because. You got my girl Tiffany coming through pretty soon. Yes, I do in two weeks. Well, no, just over 10 days. Okay. Week on Sunday, Tiffany will be here. Okay, so you and I are going to be able to uh, uh, to be able to meet in person because I definitely yes. plan on coming up there for, for that. Uh, did you happen to see, or, 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 or maybe online or even in person, did you happen to see the recent mixtape tour that she did with New Kids on oh. the Block and uh No, I didn't and, see it. I, I think somebody mentioned it recently that she had done that. Yes. But I haven't seen any of it. It it was so fantastic. She still she's the Tiffany that I remembered as a <laughs> as a kid, man. So oh, cool. I am so all of you out there and so let's go ahead and give our listeners the date. Is it September the seventh? Is that the uh, I think that's the date that I had written on my calendar here. It's Sunday. Okay, I think let, it's the eight. Okay, let me see here. Let's just so we can make sure so we can our listeners can definitely can know. And, and I think I have Reverend Horton Heat on the seventh. Gotcha. Okay, and I've known Jim for a long time. Um, <laughs> he and I go go way back. Uh, so uh, so if you it, will that be your first time seeing the Rev in, in concert? No, he played here last year. In oh. fact, a lot, quite a few of the people that are playing that are not like you know these big names that I've got this month. Um, they've all played here before. So most of them are at least second or third time. Uh, it, it, It'll be his it, second yeah. time. Okay. And is it, but this is Tiffany's first time though, right? Tiffany's first time. Okay. So, um, on Sunday the 8th. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So Sunday, September the 8th in Greenville, Texas at the Texan, this glowing bright beacon of, from the past, uh, that is bringing you, uh, you know, all of your favorite stuff from the past, present, and even in and into the future here. And again, uh, you know, Barbara, uh, you, I, I love that you greet people uh, from the stage and just creating such a unique atmosphere. Well, thank you. Uh, so, who else? Who else do you have coming through there? Oh, this month is crazy. We've got Tiffany coming. Then on Friday of that week, on the twelfth. No, the 13th. I have Sylvia, who's also the song Nobody from 
80s? Yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, of course. And then um, I've got two shows on Saturday the 14th uh, with Bill Engvall, the comedian. An afternoon show. We'll still have food at the afternoon show. And then a dinner show uh, with him. The next week is Mark Wills on the 19th, Mo Bandy on the 22nd, Shenandoah, the band, on 27th. And then the 29th, well, you're not going to get to meet him. You're not going to get to shake hands with him, Brett Michaels. But he's going to be on my stage and do a conversation. You get to send in um, written questions. He'll answer written questions um, and talk about his life. Wow. Yeah. And he's somebody who is, has a real neat connection with his fans and, and has really, uh, I mean, he's like considered one of these very, very fan-friendly uh, right. artists. He's always kind of doing a lot of, also doing a lot of patriotic work. Um, I know he's kind of, uh, we did some work with the USO and they were, he was like one of the top requested um, acts for okay. people that are stationed overseas and stuff like that. And so, awesome. well, that's absolutely wonderful. And, and I wanted to ask you, so you you were going back and forth. You said you were living in Austin and coming to visit, of course, mm-hmm. you know, your family. So when you decided to buy it, that, that means you decided to, to uproot your life in Austin and move back to Greenville, right? Well, actually, I didn't at first. I didn't, I, I will not recommend this to anybody. Do not live four hours away from your construction. And don't live four hours away from your brand new business. Yeah. Because lots of decisions have to be made really fast, and you're not there to make them, and somebody else does, and you have to live with them. Yeah. So about a year ago, um, having noticed all those decisions I didn't get to make, I came, and um, I guess you live where the cats live, and the cats haven't been back to Austin since May a year ago. So I've pretty much been here. I visit Austin. I saw the house down there, and I water the plants and things. And so, what were you doing in Austin uh, that allowed you to, 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 you know, make enough money to purchase the theater from your youth? Oh, I was being a bum. I'm a lawyer. I, uh, but I kept waiting tables. Um, yeah, I just and I had a friend who was very interested in what I was doing and supported me and supported the theater. Yeah, wanted it to happen. What, so there it is. What area of law uh, were you practicing? Well, I didn't really practice, but I did um, I did a lot of volunteer work. So I did, um, I worked with AIDS patients and did end-of-life documents. I worked with the legal project and did um, divorces for people who really didn't have the money for a divorce but needed to get out of the situation. Yeah. And then I studied a lot of intellectual property. And, um, the Trisket weaves, does it infringe their uh, patent or trademark if another piece of Cracker has the same weave. Does that confuse people? <laughs> you know, I'd rather fight about Trisket weaves than children. Well, sure. So, so now you have you've gone from death and divorce to to song and dance. So that's <laughs> and you know, and that's 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 that thing too. You know, it's like you know, you're you're the memories that you have of being in that place as a child. Knowing that you're now in charge of, of creating those same memories uh, for for people from your own hometown, it's got to be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. I saved a few things in the building so that you can recognize it. The restrooms are from the 30s, and there's a couple of fixtures in the auditorium that people would remember. But also creating new opportunities. On Wednesdays, I have a free show, uh, the best 
artsy happy hour anywhere is what the guy who runs it says. But last night, some kids, or like teenagers from Roy City, just down the road, played, it's a rock band now, and they played on my stage uh, for all their friends and family. So I opened up the house to have people make new memories. Yeah. Along with my shows, but I also do open it up for things like that. What, what, and that's wonderful, and I'm glad that you do that too, because of course you know the big shows have to have to pay the bills. But this, right. because those kids that played that show, they'll never forget it. You know what I mean? Right. They, they were totally excited about it. Um, they had played once before in April. I have a Dream Night Talent Search, which is I, I sort of think of it as the farm teams for America's Got Talent and Little Big Shots and things. So there's somebody out doing these talent shows searches contests around the country um this is the only one from this company in texas that um the winner gets a front of the line pass to the producers of the show you know all those people that wait in line right right um, and you see them on tv these guys don't have to wait in line they get they will definitely be a front of the line to see the winner of the contest here will see the producers to find out if they can be on the america's got talent or little big shots or um, there's, I think there's four that the producers produce, and so that is outstanding. You know, uh, it's kind of exciting when they asked me if they could do their show here. I was like, "Wow, hmm, sounds like fun. Let's work it out and give these kids and these actually adults too the opportunity of a lifetime to be on the um, on the TV show." Well, yeah, but I, but even in the small context, I mean, even if you were to take the TV opportunity, you know, off the, you know, off the table, right. it's just that, you know, we were talking about this, today, and it's, it's crazy to think that, that in October it'll be 30 years, but I was in a little rock and roll band with me, me, <laughs> me and my best friends, you know, and, right. and we were given an opportunity like, like uh, you're talking about that was just mm-hmm. given to us by a good person like yourself that wanted to give that type of experience to somebody. And, and we ended up playing a show in 1989 in front of the entire town that we lived in. And that is oh, well. 30 years later, and we still talk about it. We will we will never... Right. And so th- those kids and many more people you give that opportunity to, uh, they won't forget it. And, uh, and and I won't either for you, for you doing that for them. Um, Barbara, I wanted to thank you again so much. Uh, is there... Again, I want to thank Barbara Horan. I want to thank all my guests. Thanks so much to Stu Stone. Man, check that out. You know, school just started this weekend. You're not really wanting to go out. You know, you're trying to get back to your old sleeping pattern. So, man, if you're going to make it a, as we used to say in 89, a blockbuster night, but make it a Netflix and chill night, is uh, check out Jack of All Trades, uh, Stu Stone's movie. He was also the producer, as you learned, from, uh, of a wrestling movie called The Sheik about the, you know, the legendary Iron Sheik. And I didn't know that until he told me that. And I've seen that before, too. And that's fantastic. But check out Jack of All Trades. Definitely want to thank Stu Stone uh, for coming onto our program. Uh, thank Adam James for his music. want to thank Barbara Horan for all the great work that she's doing with the Texan uh, out there in Greenville. And uh, one is, of course, obviously thank my buddy Chaz for coming on. Thank all of you for listening. Again, we hope you had a great summer. Now we're back into the swing of things and looking forward to fall. Uh, September is always the most exciting month. Um, it's the last month of the regular season. 
um, for baseball, and as we all know, that it's the last year for Globe Life Park in Arlington for the Texas Rangers before they move on to their new stadium next year. So that's kind of the end of thing, and Billy Joel is going to give a big concert uh, there on October 12th, right in the uh, the middle of uh, of uh, postseason play there on their way to the World Series. Doesn't look like the Rangers are going to make it this year to postseason play, but uh, still, think you know, still September, you know, crazier things have happened. So, again, I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, again, you can find us on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe. You can find us on every platform. We're on Spotify and Pandora. Check it out. Write to us on Twitter, uh, Tricky Kid in the number two. Tell us what uh, what you want to hear. Um, uh, coming up, you know, we have some other some other uh, great news as well. Is talking about talking about 1989 was probably one of the greatest albums uh, ever to come out um, in 1989 uh, in any genre. Who made such an, a powerful impact on my life was King's X came out with Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, and as you all know, I'm currently. Uh, um, Involved with King's X, want to give a shout out today is Doug Pinnock's 69th birthday. Happy birthday to Doug! He's been on the show, of course, many, many times. Most recently with our tribute to uh, Vinnie Paul after he passed away, and we did a whole tribute to, to Dime and Vinnie and uh, for that whatever. But again, 69 years young and still kicking much ass. And Gretchen goes to Nebraska. I'm currently working on a documentary to finally bring uh, the story of King's X. Um, they made the news this week. Unfortunately, they had to cancel their European tour. Uh, but I hope uh, uh, that's going to be actually postponed, not canceled, uh, and brought to everybody probably sometime in the uh, the spring of next year in 2020. And we'll be there uh, filming all of that. Uh, to show you that this guy, uh, that King's X is such a global phenomenon, and uh, what an incredible band! Um, I would love for everybody out there to uh, a whole new generation, kind of like what Motley did with the Dirt, to get new eyes on their just incomparable legacy. And it's just such a great story about rock and roll and redemption and longevity and overcoming race and religion and sexuality and all kinds of amazing things. So it's more like a human story about the members of King's X, Ty, Doug, and Jerry, who happened to play in this band called King's X. So check out Gretchen Ghosts in Nebraska. Came out in 1989. Uh, look for their tour dates. Look for their new album. They've been recorded a new record. That's, uh, they finally finished it after uh, 11 long years. It should be out later this year, uh, if not first thing next year. Uh, and again, we have an, we have this movie. Uh, probably won't be out till January 2021, but it is coming. So again, thanks to all of our guests. Check us out again. Uh, Facebook, uh, Tricky Kid Radio Podcast, uh, Instagram, DJ Tricky Kid. Don't forget Tricky Kid TV. If you're wanting updates about the new King's X record, go to our YouTube channel, Tricky Kid TV. We have these great, amazing kind of in the vein of Spinal Tap. We have a lot of fun there. Uh, and you can see these updates shot right there in the studio uh, that they're at Black Sound in Pasadena, California, where they recently just were uh, listening to the Stones who played... Uh, at the uh, Rose Bowl, and the Stones album Steel Wheels came out in 1989. So I'm going to leave you with this song. Uh, if you know uh, the movie uh, from Stuart Stone, again, uh, Jack of All Trades, I know what it's like to also 
um, kind of grow up without a dad or, or kind of have a dad that, uh, kind of, uh, you know, anyway, my story's a little bit different from his, but, uh, but it's sad that, uh, that what happened with him and his dad suddenly disappearing, I don't want to give too much away for, for the film. You should check it out. But from 1989, they're, uh, one of my favorite bands that we also just saw, um, is, uh, Faster Pussycat. And they had an album that came out in that year called Wick Me When It's Over. The main lead single from that was a, a ballad I'm going to leave you with called House of Pain. And it's very much about that that topic. Uh, it's a great song. It still is, holds up and is relevant today. And I thought it was very, very fitting. So for to Stu Stone, my friend, this one's for you. Let's have a great semester. Let's have a great fall season. Uh, welcome everybody back here. We thank you for listening and we will see you next week.